This episode of This Is Only a Test is brought to you by the TV show APB on Fox. Tune in for the premiere Monday, February 6th at 9, 8 central after 24 Legacy. Hey, let's start the show. For Thursday, February 2nd, 2017, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. to this week's episode of This Is Only a Test. How is everyone in the room doing, including my two co-hosts, Kishore Hari and Jeremy Williams? You may talk. I'm starting to feel better. I'm starting mm. to feel a little worse. What? Hey, so Jer- Jeremy and I were talking. We think Norm is sick, but he does not. No. So I think the listener should help us diagnose, based off Norm's mannerisms and his voice, whether he's sick or not. I don't feel sick. Uh, we'll we'll see. We will. We're going to crowdsource this. We will Jeremy see. is sick. You <clears throat> I'm, are. I'm all dayquilled up though. Oh, I'm all right. Ooh, congested. Coffee and dayquil. <laughs> <laughs> A potent combination. Wow, it's early to get the name for the episode out there. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Kishore, you were feeling not so great last week. You know, did you have some of Steve Lynn's delicious Japanese Kit Kats? Because those have curative properties. Are those I opened? I uh, yes. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. I had yeah. those two weeks ago, and. Um, I should have used those properties last week, mm-hmm. but I use the combination of Diet Coke and NyQuil to heal myself. Okay, NyQuil, DayQuil and coffee, <laughs> Diet Coke and NyQuil. <laughs> it's all about the caffeine and the quill. And NyQuil knocks you out, though. Doesn't that conflict with the Diet Coke? Yeah, all well, right. that's why I'm counteracting the two forces. Wow. It's like a coffee nap. It's all about oh, equilibrium. Yeah. Talked about that. Yeah. Um, what did you guys do this past weekend? Anything fun? I don't know. It's like all a blur now. I don't know, dude. When you have kids, it's like you sh- shuttle them around to their various activities. Oh, no. Well, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> that is like such a downer. That, that is your life like these my days. Saturday is you're, like... You are your child's Uber driver. Yeah. Oh, it five is. stars, dad. It's five I don't stars. get five stars. It's no secret that a lot of dads look forward to the week because that's when they can relax. <laughs> Now, my wife is out of town on a company retreat, mm-hmm. so now I'm like single parenting it. So it's even like twice as bad as it is normally. You can't give them, you can't give them iPads or video games or an activity, perhaps. A, I'm a an model involved kit. parent. Okay, okay. Like Thursday right. night is science activity night at home, but it, there's more to do when you're the single parent. Or to marathon, you know, maybe Star Trek Next Generation. That's a good way to. Raise your children and enjoy some. All right, a little bit of pop culture. So that and did nostalgia. happen. That did happen. My son and I were finally up to. Uh, we finished the two-parter uh, with Lacutus Le- Le- Borg in it. Oh wow! Season episode end of season three That's, and beginning of season four. You know your wow. Star Trek. Best sir. of both worlds. That's part right. one and part two. That's right. Rikers fire 
at the end. Did he feel that that tension, that climb, that big cliffhanger? Absolutely. He's never watched a cliffhanger before. Like that's his first ever. Fr- and I was like, you know how long people had to wait between these two episodes? Six months. I see. Yeah, I said all summer, but it was even more than that. Yeah. And I was like, you know, maybe we should we should wait that long just to feel it. So well, he doesn't watch Game of Thrones. He had to wait like a year and a half that's right. between seasons. That's right. So we get we get that today too. That's right. Did did the whole like climax when he when Picard's like sleep sleep data did that still work? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Why wouldn't it? I don't know. I just felt like that. It, that's there was some hokiness. It's a, a little hokey from what Crusher says next. He's like he's so tired. Oh no, no. <laughs> you got to understand. We're coming up. We're coming. We just watched seasons one and two. <laughs> so so like we're we're in good territory now. Now I, okay, we haven't had and we should do regular check ins. I am in favor. Let us know if you would like us to do regular check ins with Jeremy and what it's like to show your child TNG for the first time because I'm fascinated. I remember fondly my first time watching Next Generation when yep. it was syndicated. Uh, season three, the outfits change. It was a big deal for Star Trek fans. Hmm. How did you explain that to your son? I didn't catch that. You know, his he's fascinated by the opening credits and how they changed the music and the graphics for, from seasons one through three. And when we we finally got to season four, episode one, he was like, oh, they didn't change it. Wow. Like that was something he was looking forward maybe to. Maybe your your son wants to be a, a editor, a yeah, video editor. Maybe so, maybe so. Yeah, or or a composer. Jerry Goldsmith did all the music for all the Star Trek shows. So you're saying that the uniform change isn't explained in the show? It's not explained. It's never explained. Yeah. Um, of course, it's a perfect place for apologetics to come in, where the fans make up the theories, uh, and even the producers have some kind of, um, they have their own logic. For example, Voyager. So uh, typically the costume changes happen, one arbitrarily in between Next Generation, between two, seasons two and three, they went from the one-piece jumpsuits, and the practical reason was they went to a two-piece, and they did a redesign, it was easier for the costumes to put on pants and a, and and a the, pullover. And then right? Picard could always just do this, And then you had the, the famed Picard maneuver, which is not the actual Picard maneuver that he does in the context of the show. The Picard maneuver in the show is what he used against the Ferengis, where he went in light speed, and it looks like there's two ships at once, the Stargazer. But the Picard maneuver that the fans call is his tug. So something you should call it to Peter is the tug. Oh, yeah, sure. So when he's, <laughs> when, when Picard sits up and he does a bold move, he pulls his shirt down. And that's something he can only do with the new uniforms oh. in season three. Now, going forward, there is another big uniform change in Star Trek Generations. They redesigned it. And it's the weirdest thing. So when you get to Star Trek Generations, the half, first half of the movie, they start off with one type of uniform. And then the second half with no explanation and no time shift. No, it's within like no jump forward in time. Oh. It's within like for one day Picard woke up and put on these clothes. Next day in a later scene, he's wearing the same clothes that they introduced in Deep Space Nine, oh. which is what they call the space jumpsuit. Um, it has the kind of like mauve purpley uh, dicky on the inside, and then the uh, the cut the the cut down um, the opening. Um, same color schemes. They look a little more, a little more fitted. Uh, it's actually what Voyager started with. Now, then <laughs> Voyager was interesting. This is where there's like the reality of the universe that conflicts with the the production. For Voyager, since that went on, uh, and the, the story of Voyager, of course, is they're lost in the Delta Quadrant and they have no contact with Starfleet. And they start concurrent with DS9. And they start concurrent with, like Voyager started um, after Next Generation, and then Next Generation started concurrent with DS9. But Voyager started with the same uniforms as DS9, these with the, the purple dickies. <laughs> Once 
First Contact, the movie came out, the costumes changed again, oh, and they had the Dickies have different colors based on the and red, more blue, of like a and they had ripple, a shoulder shoulder, ripple, pad. shoulder pad gray. And I love those outfits. I think those, those are, are the nice. Best. Yeah, uh, and then DS Nine changed those outfits, but Voyager didn't change outfits. Voyager stayed with the jumpsuit, spacesuit, Dickie. Right. And the logic with the show was like, oh, they're, I guess they're lost. They couldn't have gotten new in, uniforms. In deep space. Well, they could have, but they there was no directive. Yeah, exactly. They couldn't. But fans fans noted, <laughs> well, then why did the props, the phasers change? <laughs> and they got the new first contact style phasers later in Voyager, but not the uniforms. And so the apologetics explanation is that those are programmed in into the replicators that once they amassed enough computational data, or so they would unlock the, the new weapons. But Voyager, in, in <laughs> wanting to conserve energy because they had limited resources, they didn't want... They didn't need to re-replicate new um, new clothes because that wasn't life essential. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is season four of TNG. We saw a few of the red shirts actually wearing the old uniforms. Yes. And the, That's the right. crew with speaking parts wear the new uniforms. Yes. That felt like the... Oh, we ran out of we ran out of new uniforms. New uniforms. Wear Absolutely. this old one. The only thing I can add to this conversation is you mentioned the the Picard maneuver. Yes, that is actually a pinball maneuver. Really? Yeah, that's referred to in Star Trek: The Next Generation, which is an all time classic pinball machine. Mm-hmm. Hit the left orbit, upper right flipper to the Delta Quadrant, which is an upper ramp. It's a it's not easy, and it's called a Picard maneuver. Wow. And if you do it successfully after after finishing warp, uh. Uh, Riker comes on. He says, "Ah, the Picard maneuver, nicely done." <laughs> oh my! So it's an official part of the program. Oh, absolutely, that's great. Wow. Um, so I guess we would love. I would love to hear more about as you progress through season three and four. What was your favorite four. episode of season three? Because season three is a, <laughs> it's a standout season. People say oh, it's the best. season. Let me just hand over my nerd credentials right now. I don't have a favorite episode of season three. Do you remember what were the great moments between you and your son? Oh, oh my goodness, man! I mean, the, I think the best moment is probably the the season finale. Um, that's fantastic. I don't know. I'd have to re- I'd have to review and remember what uh, what was in season three. Well, it's twenty six episodes. Yeah, it's, see, a lot, it's a lot, a lot of episodes. It's a lot. Um, Oh, come on. It has to be. This is, there's, I, I, no a, there's no doubt. No, 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 no doubt. No doubt. It's, we'll say at the same time, yesterday's, yesterday's enterprise. enterprise. Oh, my God. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> what is that? That's the one. That's the, the, the time loop one. It's the Groundhog Day. Kelsey Grammer comes through the wormhole. Yeah, that's right. It really? was Kelsey Grammer at oh, the end I, of that. Oh, wait. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's not. I... That's. Uh, uh, I'm, I, oh, whoa. That's cause and effect. Oh my gosh. Is that one. Yesterday's Enterprise is Tosh Jar coming back. Yes, exactly. Like basically a ship is is stuck in this sort of like wormhole thing and it causes a time shift where now like the Federation is at war and they're kind of losing the war and Tasha Yar is alive and mm. Guinan figures it is like, I feel like something's wrong here. It's an alternate universe. The whole yeah. episode is set in an alternate reality where Tasha Yar is still alive. Uh, you know, I didn't see that one. I think my three son, pips. He watched a few with my wife. Three pips. That's got to be the one. Of them. Um, That's what you, I remember about that episode. Did you like um, <laughs> the Q episodes? Uh, I like all the Q episodes. So that was there's a Q episode. Deja Q was in season three. Q loses his powers. He floats naked in front of the Enterprise and drops down. 
Oh, that's where like Corbin Burnson from LA Law takes away mm. his powers. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nope, I didn't see that one either. What yeah. do you mean you didn't see I, it? Then? I guess I don't. I didn't watch as many as I thought I did. Well, there are twenty six in per season. That's a lot of episodes. I thought Q was uh, ordered never to engage with the Federation again. Q is the bookend for the series. It's all about yeah. Q's judgment of humanity. Yeah, I know that's how it starts out. I forgot that's how, it en- yeah. that's how it ends. <laughs> I do. You know, there was one other episode I liked is uh, in season three, which is where there was a Romulan defector who is like convinced of of this like sort of um, plot, but it was really just to, to out him. Is this great sort of mm. intellectual uh, episode where the Romulan Empire just messes with that one person? All right. Well, pay attention, maybe a little more attention to season four, Jeremy, because we're gonna we're gonna quiz you, and I would love the weekly updates if you are watching on a weekly basis of oh. of, of reaction. I'm sure everyone and... wants weekly updates. <laughs> We're going to, yeah, see, is it season five that we're, is uh, how many lights, right? Yeah. All right. Are we moving oh, on? Oh, I'm so excited. I know. We're living, we're, what, what, what's we're living it? vicariously through, <laughs> okay. through your, your shared experience with your son. Let's go. Well, there's only one big pop culture event happening this week of any note, and it's got to be the return of The Expanse. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm really excited for the return. There's been great videos on Tested uh, with Adam visiting, you know, the prop shops and and the sets of The Expanse. Uh, And I've read the the books. Have have you read any of the Corey books? books. I've only been following the show. No, I haven't watched the show either because I don't have a whole lot of faith in the sci-fi network. But you're saying this is good, huh? The show is is excellent. It's um, it's ambitious, and I would say season one spent a lot of time building that world, and that's not easy to do. Uh, and so there's a lot more intrigue than action in season one. And you know, having read the books, season two is going to have to shift the other way. There's a lot of stuff that's going to start happening now that the world has been built, like the the. You know, mystery. The the players are all on the at the table. The kind of villains are are starting to show themselves. Um, and I loved it. It's a high production value show, also. Really, right? and which something you like, you can see it on screen. Just not only the visual effects, but the like the the costumes that are made, the sets that are made. Um, and we really got a good glimpse of that as Adam went back behind the scenes and visited, as Kishore said, the wardrobe department, the prop departments, and went on set for. For um for some of that shooting um but also didn't want to bear the lead we do have the Super Bowl this weekend which is maybe for people outside of the, the podcast the biggest cultural event at least uh, in, some, in, in in the United States you're down with the Super Bowl yeah I'm all about that Lady Gaga halftime so excited I'm more about, I'm more about the uh the Skylar sisters singing America the Beautiful wow is that that's right? a deep Did you cut know that no yeah that sounds good the original um uh. Flippa Sue, um, oh, I've read the, uh, all three, the original performers. Uh, Angelica, Eliza. Angelica, Eliza. Not, and, pe- not and, Peggy? No, Peggy's there. Oh, yeah? Peggy, yeah, and Peggy. <laughs> she confides in me. <laughs> That's great. Now I have to hold, turn in my nerd card. Wow. They're, they are singing America the Beautiful. That's great. Yeah. I'm excited about Super Bowl. It's one of my favorite days because I have a giant Super Bowl chicken wing party with about 40 pounds of chicken wings 
and with sauces made from scratch. Uh, it's been great getting to know uh, Kenji from Serious Eats this year because he's also doing some hot sauce testing, which I'm hoping to incorporate into some of these sauce flavors this year. Wow. Uh, Norm has has come in the past. Uh, it's been amazing. I'm working on my alcoholic wing flavor Ooh. right now. It's going to be mint julep this year. No, oh. a bourbon and uh, mint flavored chicken. That's wing. really intriguing. I would yeah. like to review your Super Bowl wings on video. Oh no! Share the experience, or or we'll talk no. about it next week on the podcast. How many? Flavors? I tried poutine last year. I tried to do poutine last year, and yeah. Norm's review was like one star. Get out of here. <laughs> How many flavors do you provide? We usually do six or seven. That's yeah. a lot, dude. Yeah. I, we have one ambitious wing uh, where a, a friend, because like a lot of our sauces are orange, he's like, I want, I'm going to make a Trump wing. And I'm going to like basically layer like a cotton candy on top of a wing and it'll look like Donald Trump's hair. <laughs> I was like, that, okay, all we'll right. try that. This year we're going to try to sous vide all of the wings beforehand and then flash fry them. And peanut oil to Did finish. Did you need my uh, sous vide uh, circulators? Yeah, we could talk about that. Let's, not let's on, talk the about that on the podcast. On the podcast, because I forgot to bring them to the office today. But we should arrange it so I could best facilitate your cooking of wings that I will enjoy this Sunday. Do you guys enjoy? I mean, we've talked about Super Bowl before, but do you enjoy the ritual, the gathering of friends, the watching of the pregame show, the movie trailers that come out during the show? I mean, a lot of this commercials, high production values. I mean, I feel like the the um, sanctity of the Super Bowl commercials has been diminished over the years with the early release of that content. So I'm a huge football fan, and I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I was born in Buffalo, New York. I'm sorry. So then the 90s were painful Super Bowl experiences. And then we went through this long period of time where the games were just bad. And I think that's when the commercials sort of rose to the fore. And we've been lucky enough, you know, with the exception of the, of the past couple of years, most of the games have been great over, you know, the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And that's where my focus is on. And because I'm doing this big party, I kind of avoid some of that pregame stuff. I don't know if I love this tradition of like interviewing the president in pregame now, which has become a tradition. Um, and like you said, the commercials have lost a little of their luster uh, because of, of how they're released. Thanks, but, Internet. But... All that being said, I love getting together and having multiple TVs going and people screaming and playing, uh, you know, having betting pools and and all the the food and the nonsense that goes into like the pomp and circumstances. Is that why you took my ten dollars this morning? No, no, that's (laughs) going to be for for a science experiment later. (laughs) Okay, so you say. Um, Yeah, I I like the I like the ritual. I do find that um, watching with. There is a critical mass of people and how big a party you can have, and that takes away, and that be- then becomes more of the social gathering, and then it becomes the viewing of the event. Um, and I do like watching the commercials and the movie trailers because I, I like seeing, like it, it is, it's like the the <laughs> the Super Bowl of commercials <laughs> at the Super Bowl. Jeremy's not interested. No. <clears throat> do you even watch it? I mean, I used to watch it for the commercials, but now they're all online. You can watch them anytime you want. Um, halftime shows sometimes kind of interesting. I don't know. Super Bowl Sunday was a good song by Ozo Motley. I'll give you that. Wow. I'll give you that. Um, it introduced me to, to Charlie Tuna, who would led to Jurassic 5, one of the all-time great rap groups, in my opinion, of the early 90s. But not just your opinion. Jurassic 5. Is oh, you like Jurassic 5? J5? Right on, yeah. dude. 
Now, because the Super Bowl is such a big production of an event, it's you know obviously it's live, and there's so much going on. There seems to be a lot of opportunity. I hope tech companies have seized on that opportunity to use their camera systems to document. I imagine this year there's got to be like Facebook and GoPro have got to be set up all over the place to do either live streams or recordings of how they set up. The halftime show and all, everything that happens during the commercial breaks and behind the scenes. I'd love to see that documented and and released for 360 video or other media formats. There's no way they will because of the security implications, right? It's different every year, though. I don't know. I like. I know there. You know, Homeland Security is deeply involved in mm. a lot of that planning, and I believe. I, you know, I might be wrong here. They try to restrict some of that um, availability of, of behind the scenes stuff because. Of, of how highly secure the event is. Right on. All right. Uh, so maybe we'll talk about, a little bit about post-Super Bowl stuff next week. But back in terms of movie content and things that we're, our audience, we know they're excited about, some Star Wars news. This is good. Yes. Uh, so we is know, it good? <laughs> episode 8 is coming what? out. We <laughs> talked about Last Jedi. Uh, but yeah. in production now is the Han Solo standalone film the first um young han solo young That's yes right. definitely confirmed a young han solo i'm not going to say it's an origin film because we don't know well it's an origin he's film. certainly younger he's younger for sure and, and now that we this what you're about to talk about the, the cast member who was announced yes yeah, so a couple of the cast members of course donald glover and uh i always forget the guy's name playing han solo he's from yeah uh, hail caesar i'm sure his name's gonna be like everywhere once the movie comes out but now you also have Woody Harrelson. Yeah, and a little cast. little shocking. I'll, I'll grant you, uh, but I and I was thinking, okay, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want such a familiar face in my Star Wars. That's right. But and there's somebody who you just associate so many characters with. But when you read about the character he's playing, you get it. You say, okay, no, that might work. So mild spoiler for those who are listening. If you don't even want to hear this, well, that goes even the saying. name, even the name of the character. Yeah. Okay. Right, so here now we go. you can next can, two minutes. Uh, Go. The character's name is Garrus Shrike, which, let's be honest, sounds like a Mass Effect character. <laughs> it's not a new name, right? This is part of the expanded universe. It is. is. It like the, the now no longer canonized, or is it canon? I think it is. They are cherry picking. The EU, ah. they cherry pick, so you have like Thrawn going to the Rebels, but may not be the one that the EU fans have, have been familiar with. So this is from a story that was pre, um, in episode seven, right? This is it was yes. It was a Old, older book. It was a book um, called uh, "The Paradise Snare." Oh, you're right. Nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah, that was a while ago. And it was uh, the Han Solo trilogy, which is young Han Solo in book form. And a lot of fans, I know Wes, for example, love this series. It, you had a lot of the mythology of Han Solo being brought up in here, including how he developed his blaster. Things they allude to in episode seven hmm. or in episode uh, four about you know not just the Kessel Run, but also like why he's such a rogue. Um, yeah. So. So this is a criminal mentor, is what we think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and a, a pretty rotten guy. So basically, it's his character. Like he, the guy, the, Woody Harrelson is playing a character <laughs> who used to be a bounty hunter, but he couldn't be a bounty hunter because he kept killing the people he would catch. But as a mentor figure, he's done. he did that in The Hunger Games. The washed up mentor. I, I do think it's a little typecast. And well, I, I agree with, I, yeah. I go back to your initial sentiment, and that's what I'm sticking to, which is that I don't want to see too many familiar faces, superstars in 
my Star Wars film. Right. Even like Sam Jackson, it feels too much like fan service. Like let's bring people who are fans into into these into the universe. I like it when it's more unknowns. Yeah. The Han Solo guy is perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um so but anyway, I who remains to be seen what you know how large his role is, Woody Harrelson's. You know, it, it might not be that big, it might be big. Yeah, and I'm surprised they let him talk about it at all. Um, he seemed a little hesitant to talk about it. Uh, he might be getting some a call from from the mouse sometime soon. Um, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who are directing the Han Solo movie, and this is something that gives us extreme confidence in the film because they are a great collaborative, creative team. They did the Lego movie, Twenty One Jump Street, um, and uh, and that TV show, um, Last Man on Earth. Last Man on Earth. Everything they've done is, has been great. Uh, they released, they tweeted a photo of the slate for the film, and the working title is Star Wars Red Cup. This had to be explained to me, but I like it. Explain it to me, because I, I still don't know what, what's that. Well, you know those little uh, plastic cups you get at the water fountain that are red? Yes. You know the brand name that makes them? Uh, Solo. Solo. Uh, yeah. Very clever. I would not have gone, I would not have, have made that connection. Excellent. So that's the first photo from the set, I guess, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, production is underway. Uh, it's supposed to come out next year. I'm excited. That tweet is all wrong. It says Han first shot. That's backwards. Han shot first. Well, that's the Han. first <laughs> shot. It's the first shot. You get it? I get it. Okay, I didn't know if you I'm got messing it. messing around with I didn't me. know if you got it. <laughs> I mean, I would assume you get it, but it didn't seem like you got it. Can we go back to talking about TNG season five now? <laughs> <laughs> something we are experts on. Uh, well, speaking of Star Trek, we actually do have a resolution to something uh, we've been letting you guys know about, which, which is the Anaxar um, fan film settlement. But what a drama. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the resolution is that the production team can release the film in a certain format. What they originally had hoped to be was a 90-minute commercial release for their fan film, is now going to be basically a 30-minute film released online for free in two 15-minute segments. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. The 15-minute segment seemed weird and arbitrary to me. Yeah. I understand the free. Yeah. That that seemed like the most important point, but like, why did length matter? I don't know. Uh, were they already more or less finished? I think they they were ready. I mean, they had shot everything. Can they release the rest as bonus material? Well, that's what people have speculated, but I don't think so. I mm. think they would. That would be inviting more. Well, whatever. I mean, they could leak trouble. it. It could leak. It could end up on BitTorrent, right? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, if it's all free anyway, it'll end up out there. Yeah, yeah. And here, here's your YouTube 15 minute cut, and here's the leak. I Oops. mean, I think it was more about them maybe wanting to make money off of this. Yeah. I'm sure that's what it was, but I'm glad that there's settlement because enough, enough with this story. I mean, they also clearly spent money on it, though, right? Yeah. So there's an investment. Well, they did a crowdfunding campaign. I think paid for a lot yeah. of it. Um, Do you see the news on uh, Discovery? Yeah, yeah the I, we official did cover this. CBS uh, Star Trek show. So that also showed its first slate, um, and that is now in production. Uh, there was a big. I know, like the, the social video they released that like. Star Trek began with, uh, you know, 50 years ago with Gene Romberry writing, Star Trek is, and you know, Star Trek is, will begin again. Uh, I just want to see a show. How is that not in production yet? I know. It's it, a it mess. Like, it was the, supposed to be released. I know. Now. May or, it, so it had a pushback to May, which we reported on, you know, a couple months ago. That has been changed to indefinite, indeterminate date. 
So it got pushed back from May. Uh, though, did you see the they leaked uh, an image of the captain's chair? Oh, and as somebody on this set has built a captain's chair. Well, yeah. Adam built a captain's chair. Well, you, I put some as, LEDs you, on it. You were around when yeah, there was, was a captain's <laughs> chair is built. Uh, what do you think? I haven't seen it. Wait, is that it? Yeah, I have it up right here. Uh, I love it. That looks good. Looks a little too slick for me. Well, you can't really see it. It's like all black well, and white. Well, because isn't this supposed to be, you know, in and around the, the TOS time frame? It is. Oh, then it is too slick because that definitely looks more next gen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's supposed to, it's, it's, not, it's not in the JJ Kelvin universe. So it, it, it seems weird to me that they're, they're going back in time. And, yeah, yeah going forward, it yeah. seems more yeah. and, and interesting to me. I haven't seen Beyond yet, by the way. Are you guys thumbs up or thumbs down on Beyond? This the la- fun film. The yeah, la- yeah. third. Yeah, you might. There, there's gonna be some eye rolling moments okay. for you, Jeremy. Yeah, um, not as good as the first two, then. Not, as, not definitely not as good as the first one. The first one okay. stands alone as a. a, a I don't hate the. I don't hate the second. I one. think it's better than the second one. I think I agree. I think it's better than the second one, especially right. since there's not that baggage of is he con or is he not right, con. Right, right. Um, and there are some like Justin Lin brought some really beautiful shots, like uh, space flight into this film. There's definitely action sequences where like, okay, is this a Fast and Furious film or is it a Star Trek film? Okay. Uh, but I think there are elements that you're gonna be like, it's from the design standpoint, you're gonna love. And then there's one thing I know I, you gotta watch it this weekend. You gotta don't watch the Super Bowl, watch Star <laughs> Trek Beyond. And mm-hmm. we can talk about it next week, but okay. there's one element that I'm really curious what you particularly think Fascinating. about it. Because it's going to either resonate, it's going to either hit a note for you, or it's going to say, no, it's going to fall completely flat. All right. Yeah. And it was a divisive thing within Star Trek fans as well. All right. Yeah. I'm the decider with Star Trek fans. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, other movie news. Let's wrap this stuff real quick. Um, announced uh, Ben Affleck not directing the Batman standalone film. So he was he was slated to? That, that was, was the rumor. rumor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he also had in interviews talked about pre-production and that he was going to direct it. He was interested in directing it. I don't think there was ever any formal contract signed. Uh-huh. Um, speculation is that because his film Live By Night, which also Warner Brothers produced, uh, I think Warner Brothers took a $75 million uh, uh, loss on that film. Um, it was a flop, basically. Maybe the most confidence. Uh, he's still actively involved. Ben Affleck is in the Batman film. He's co-writing it with Jeff Johns, who's a creative director at DC, and also uh, he's going to star in it, but it may be too much on his plate to ask him to direct it as well. Uh, but he's going to be involved. He's producing it, so he's involved in the hunting for a director. And I think they talked about names um, that uh, I think t- one of the people on the list is Matt Reeves, who directed Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Mm. Um, well, I'm not sure... Like those are so, I mean, totally very different films. Um, well, the Batman lines up better to- tonally to Planet of the Apes than some other genres. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to be surprised by this. I don't want to go into that and, and feel like there was no vision. I'm in full prove it to me DC territory. Yeah, like oh, yeah, I can dude. still taste Suicide Squad in the back of my mouth. Oh, like I'm just the awful. Yeah, that's a oh, f- I'm just thinking of the last Batman Superman movie. That was no good. Well, well, the, the Wonder Suicide Woman Squad is so much worse. Yeah, Wonder looks, Woman looks great. Looks great. Prove it to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. I I that, will say though, that's good for them though. Being low low expectations is easy to beat. I guess. No, but they, see, low low fan expectations is different from high studio expectations because no matter what, because it is a crown jewel, 
for WB in DC, it is high, high, high studio expectations. He's also following, I mean, while The Dark Knight Rises was not, didn't nearly live up to the other Nolan films, he is following the best Batman films ever made. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I will say, though, if people are looking for a recommendation, I just watched the animated Justice League Dark way better than any of this garbage, you know, live action stuff. What's Justice League Dark about? It's uh, a, it's a relates to magic. So all like uh, Constantine is in it and um, uh, Zatanna on a number of of different uh, magical uh, forces in the DC universe. All right. I mean, there was also the Lego Batman movie coming out. Like in, oh, that's like in a week, weeks. which look, yeah. looks yeah. great. Yeah. I expect that to be great. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that's it for pop culture news. Let's talk about some technology. We typically do not go d- deep into financials of companies. We don't care about how much money they're making. Uh, but we did have a lot of, we were in that time of the year where Q4 um, reports and earnings come out. And on the Apple side, Apple has returned to form. They sold more iPhones this quarter than they did a year ago. Ah. Return to growth. Man. Ah, I was trying to set it. I took a stand against the headphone jack. Yeah. I didn't buy the iPhone. And people weren't with me. Just, <laughs> it turns out they wanted the the iPhone no matter what. Uh, they just I was really thought we'd have something there. I thought we'd be able to convince Apple to put it back. If we took a stand, you know, but it just didn't have like... I don't think you're going to get anyone to protest. I have to, I have to admit, I'm surprised that that wasn't a bigger deal. Yeah, me too. People didn't stay away. Me it too. turns out the brand is so strong... That it could overcome our influence on this podcast? Well, just the general distaste for the idea of removing the headphone jack. So either Apple was right... Uh, again, their argument that they were courageous to do it, I think, is still suspect and I think not valid. But uh, from a marketing standpoint and from a product standpoint, it mattered less to people that there was no headphone jack. And maybe it mattered more that they had features like the um, like the two camera system, because that has been the best feature, the, the dual camera, the is, depth mode. Is the plus selling better than it did a year ago? So I don't know if they break it down that yeah. much. Okay. Um, and it's it's also, like, they talk about <laughs> how much, they don't talk about units, they talk about how much money was made, and obviously with the introduction of the plus model over these past couple of years, there's an extra $100, so average selling price is higher. So I think you can look at numbers, like, if the average selling price is higher for iPhones every year, and that means the plus is selling better this year than last year. Uh, but, with these earnings call, uh, earning calls, they do take time to answer some questions from analysts and the press. And one thing that like, you take everything they say with a grain of salt, because obviously they want to bolster the image of their company. Uh, iPad sales are down this year, but you know Tim Cook says iPad Pro customer satisfaction is so high, and people there are lots of exciting things coming in the next you know next couple of months with iPad Pro. Uh, the thing, I t- big thing I took away though was him saying that he still thinks that the phone smartphone market is in the early innings. What? Yeah. Yeah, he said that before. Like, he's got another four or five years in it. Well, the early innings, meaning the past 10 years of smartphones... No, that's an exaggeration. ...is is the first early innings of what smartphones mean and where we'll end up being. Because we think, at least for the past three iPhone releases, I think it's fair to say, 
the smartphone has matured. Yep. And from form factor to functionality, um, the things that have really improved are iterative things, or maybe we're waiting less so with what Apple can bring to smartphones and what infrastructurally we're going to get with wireless bandwidth and for distribution services. Um, but the experience, primarily from your iPhone, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, um, to the 7, or 6S to the 7, is fundamentally the same. It doesn't even look all that different. It's got a little bulge around the the camera. It really doesn't... I, I felt like this was a throwaway year for them. I honestly thought they went into the 7 thinking, let's take a loss on this year and just put, go all in on the iPhone, on next year's, on 2017 iPhone. So Because that's supposed to be remarkably different. Supposedly, right? Yeah. Because it's the... And I know they're not one for sentimentality, so maybe not an anniversary edition. But it'll be the 10-year... Um, but it'll be, it will yeah. technically be the 10-year anniversary for the announcement of the iPhone. But so do you think Tim Cook meant the iPhone, the smartphone market, the smartphones are still in the early innings in a market sense, meaning that in terms of how many people there are still left to sell smartphones to at a high price, or the functionality and how we use it in our daily lives, we're still kind of in that, you know, we're still in the, uh, compared to the PC market in the 90s, right, that, you know, they're reaching market saturation, but there's still jumps to come right. in how integrated they are in our uh, daily lives and how we use them. I think that the market, the people he's talking to, are only only interested in um, market and and how many people they can sell to, and so that's what he meant. I think that the, he's largely talking about emerging markets. Mm. I think Tim which is disappointing because we want. I mean, and maybe that's where you know maybe these products have like a ten year cycle, and it's a fast ten year cycle. Like we, no one saw how fast the smartphone would grow. Yeah, um, but maybe we're ready for the next thing. I think Tim Cook doesn't watch a lot of baseball. That's my guess. <laughs> there are only four four innings in a game, right? We're in the bottom of the fourth, people. It's the, still early. Or the periods. We're, it's in the it's, we're in the third third period inning. It's yeah. Um, but something that has matured is, of course, the App Store, which is uh, a big part of the, the you know the killer app for for iOS and the killer game this past holiday. A lot of people thought it would be Super Mario Run, and we finally have some figures on how well and how much money that game made. Uh, a lot of people downloaded it, not a lot of people bought it relative to the number of people who downloaded it. Right, because you get like a, a fifth of the game for free or something like that. Yep. And, but revenue-wise, it made $50 million. Now, is that a lot for an app? I'm going to say yes. Are you kidding? I mean, that seems like a ton of money. And, and I'm not surprised. Like, everyone went all in on this. Like, Nintendo did, but so did Apple. Apple yeah. marketed the hell out of this thing. You could pre-order it. That was the only time you could ever pre-order a game on the App Store, and you got a notification when it came out. You go, they, they previewed the game for the first week before it came out in their stores. And then everyone in the store was wearing a Mario pin, all of the employees. Wow. And it, it was featured on the App Store. It's probably still featured on the App Store. So they marketed the hell out of it. Well, 53, 50 million in revenue through the app only means, and we don't know whether Apple and Nintendo had a special um, uh, revenue, revenue split, split share. share. Yeah, maybe. It was different from typical app developers. But let's say they had the standard, what is it, two to three to two? Or what, what's, the, what, what's the Apple's take on It's been too long. Um, let's say, you know, let's say Nintendo made $30 million from this, right? Apple took their cut. That's like selling a million copies of a DS game. You know, and I, is that a lot? I think Apple gets plenty out of this, even if Nintendo reaps all the rewards. 
you know, because they get to be seen as the premier platform. They, I mean, Nintendo on their platform, that's a huge win for them. And it ended up being a, being a good game. A lot of people, you know, complained about the price. I think we've been spoiled by low prices on iOS, on mobile. It seemed like it was full-featured. I think part of the reason that people complained about the price is that they expected games similar to other games. This wasn't... yeah sort of your your freemium game that people are used to props man i because we'll talk about it later but i i have a problem with freemium games right but uh, it's also what apple bought into with their marketing was just a time exclusive because it's coming to android yeah yeah but google's not putting as much marketing like we don't see google touting mario on android as much as apple did so it's, it's an interesting relationship and clearly apple sees more value uh in promoting itself as a legitimate, you know, maybe, I mean, iPhones, iOS devices are legitimate game devices. There's no question about that. But in the minds of it being comparable to the console experience, um, there's still a lot of money there because that's the audience that is used to paying a lot for for content. Um, yeah. And, and not paying for just freemium content. Yeah. Or the PC audience. Uh, moving on, uh, speaking of the PC audience, um there's a new window version of Windows that might be coming out soon. Uh, Windows 11? No, Windows Win- 10 Cloud Edition. Oh, that and sounds when I horrible. Said Windows 10 Cloud Edition. I know. It's. I think it's a terrible name because exactly what it evokes. What do you think? When I say Windows 10 Cloud Edition, what do you think that means? Fees. <laughs> I was going to say um, apps in the cloud. Well, you've read the story, Kishore, maybe. Oh, uh, no. I saw some like tweets about this, but I didn't actually read the story. Yeah, so Windows 10 uh, Cloud isn't a version of Windows 10 where a virtualized version where you, you just run it in the cloud. Uh-huh. Um, or the rumors are that Windows 10 Cloud is going to be a version of Windows where you install locally, but you can only install universal apps through the Windows 10 store. You can't install. You can install your x86 apps, but they have to be through the store. But what's a universal app? Uh, so there, there are Universal's, the uh, Universal Windows platform is an app that can run on the mobile version and desktop version oh. with the same code base. So the rumor is that Microsoft's going to have a version of Windows 10 where you can't just download an exe file mm-hmm. and install, but you have to go through. Um, well, you can, as long as it's not a Universal app? No, no, no. You have to only use Universal apps. Whoa! Yeah. Oh my God! You can only run apps that are downloaded through the store, which the argument would be that it's to improve security. There would be a lighter weight, more secure version of Windows, and this isn't to replace Windows 10, but this is on the lower end. This is the new Windows RT. Okay. And remember, RT you could only install apps from the store, but the big difference with Windows RT was that RT was and uh, was um was ARM only. And is it if, what? What's the price on the, on an OS like this? Is it free? But um, since I'm buying all the apps, they make their money through the store. So I think there's nothing official announced yet. But uh, the idea is that it would be con- it would be to compete with Chromebooks. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, and Chromebooks again, you, there there are no apps to download. It's all web apps, and it's all running through the Chrome browser with yeah. a, a desktop environment that you can you know have your file management in. Uh, but Chromebooks are extremely powerful or extremely successful. Um, in both education markets and the business markets because of their simplicity. Companies like handing out Chromebooks because they're cheap, uh, they're lightweight, and you know what, and they're secure. 
because you have only approved apps. You and, don't have malware. And schools too, they love the Chromebooks because they're inexpensive and all the kids, all, the kids only use stuff on the web. It's all web apps. Yeah. Yeah, so you can imagine a version, you know, a Chromebook-like form factor for a Windows 10 uh, cloud computer that runs, you know, Office Office 365 and you know whatever the else they is in the uh, Windows 10 store. Are there competing browsers in the Windows store? Can I get Chrome? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you could have Chrome. Like so there are free apps as well. Yes. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I read an interesting story this uh, this past week about. Um, did you see? I see this Kickstarter fidget toys. Yeah, yeah. God, I, w- I mean, when that launched, I was shocked by how much money he reaped. Yeah. And now look what's happened. Well, so the full story is there was a Kickstarter for this uh, this widget. Basically, it looks like a die, like a six sided die, um, except uh, in, instead of numbers you have on each side, you have these. Like things you can fidget with, buttons and switches and scroll wheels. And the idea is that you could hold on to this and it's the 21st century stress ball that you, if you fidget and you like scrolling and you don't want to wear out the scroll wheel in your mouse, you can hold this in your hand and just fidget with it. And it was a hugely successful Kickstarter. How many, uh, how much money did they raise? It was like, um, I don't want to say it's in the millions. Yeah, that's what I think too. Uh, fidget Cube. My man, he raised waiting on Google.com. Did it have, a, and, and I don't think they've even um, delivered yet. Like, no, like no. It's, it's been your very st- typical Kickstarter story where it, you found a ton of success. Six and a half million dollars. Six and a half million dollars, hundreds of thousands of backers, and, <laughs> and they were unable to fulfill because they couldn't scale and they didn't anticipate this demand. Well, it's not they couldn't fulfill, they just weren't first to market. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the real story. That's here. the thing, isn't and it? And so there's a CNBC story about uh, there's a whole market of people, or uh, it, there's these entrepreneurs who use Kickstarter as free market research, and there's one guy, and they don't name, they don't give his real name. He goes by Jack, um, and he saw this fidget cube, saw that it raised six million dollars, thought he could get a product, a very similar product, almost exactly the same, to market faster, had contacts in China and Shenzhen, sent, you know, a couple thousand dollars, get product samples, and and then sold $350,000 worth of his copycat product uh, because he beat the Kickstarter to market. And it, it's a cautionary tale because um, a lot of times the Kickstarter idea is, yeah, you need, the, you know, it's people are using it as pre-order systems or people are using it actually as genuinely to raise R&D funding, but you're putting your idea out there. Unless you have a product that has proprietary IP that you've either patented or uh, that you're not revealing with the Kickstarter, something like an inflatable bed or things that, like ridiculous things that you can find on Kickstarter that are, that just, you find that they catch the public's eye and they, sh- they, go, they go viral socially uh, are all kind of ripe for the picking for these entrepreneurs who just who have business contacts and have distribution networks and can bring a product to market much quicker. How much do you think the consumers will ba- fight back against this? Like identify it as a knockoff and be like, we're not supporting this, this is a ripoff. I think a very, very small amount. I think a lot of the reasons these Kickstarters or crowdfunding projects get so much backing is because they're very easy. They're like almost Amazon purchases, like Prime purchases. People, they, they jump on, not because they believe in the mission, but they, they, they find the product to be novel and easy, easily purchasable and consumable. It's, it's a consumer mindset. 
And if they can go, you know, cancel their backing because they can get a very similar product cheaper and faster, uh, they're going to do that. Well, but they're under <clears throat> the uh, project creators under no obligation to, uh, you know, to give refunds. That's right. Um, and Kickstarter is out of the picture by the time this happens. Yeah. But once the 30 days is up, your Kickstarter is over. Kickstarter is done. Yeah. Uh, so the guy doesn't have to give refunds to anybody who requests it. Um, maybe, and maybe he didn't. I don't know. That's quite a lot of money. That Would you? Got. Would I have? I mean, maybe not, honestly, because... I think like, not, too. It's, you know, you're, you have gone and you have made that thing that people purchased, and they understood it. I mean, if he is not meeting his milestones, that's one thing, and he's, you know, he's got to, you know, be honest about that. But I think this is actually a really good thing, because it, it encourages people who launch Kickstarters to be aware of their quantities and to have contingencies if they, do, if they are very successful. And to, to think ahead about these kind of problems. And but. also be aware that by putting yourself out there on Kickstarter, like, again, unless you have proprietary technology or patents, and even if you have patents, someone can rip you off and then you're in the litigation business, uh, that, you know, you maybe can't build a company on that. Um, and we know companies like Pebble couldn't build a company even though they were making a unique product at the time. Uh, but when you have, you know, an idea that could be a great idea and... You know, but it's easily copied. Um, you know, it's a risk that you put out there. And I got to tell you, like, it, it, I'm sure that the guy who did this Kickstarter was aware of that. Like, every moment your product's not out, someone else could release something that competes with it. Yep. So there is definitely time pressure, and I feel bad for him. Yeah. But this is the free market. This is exactly what, sh this is a natural thing that should happen. Yeah. And the, the protections move often too slow. Um. You know the, the copyright protections and and uh, because yeah these th happens so fast. You know we're talking about as opposed to a they send the article a six month development cycle. You can get something out in a couple of weeks uh, as long as you have the context and you can make yeah. something go viral, which is a little bit of you know of, of marketing with yeah. just buying some Instagram ads. And you, isn't this only really going to affect a small set of? Of devices, though. What do you mean? Well, because the like this things that can be cheaply and easily yeah, manufactured. Yeah, this got ripped off because it could be quickly uh, adapted. I but think that you're right. For a lot of the electronics items that we see on there, like if it's like a drone or you know some other thing that's more complicated, this was the perfect thing to rip off. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like a game or something like that, even a card game where you don't have all the variables. Yeah, you're right. And I think when you talk about something like a card game, uh, a lot of times. You're it. You're backing not just the game itself. You're then you are backing the the mission, the the people behind it, right. and and that isn't something that can be duplicated. Yeah, I'm not going to buy Monopoly with an eye, <laughs> like even if it comes to market quicker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's what are the past or the most recent Kickstarter projects you guys have backed or the crowdfunding projects? I'm curious. Oh, um, <laughs> I backed something called the Foo Show. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most recent one for me too. Um, I've I've done more Patreons actually than, than Kickstarter. Oh, uh, which is I mean it's a recurring thing, but I just I you I really feel like uh, there's more of an immediate sense of reward with those, and there's a more immediate sense of like supporting the arts with those, mm -hmm. and not just manufacturing. Because the Kickstarter projects that you typically back are are more media gadget or gadgety, yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> By the way, uh, not to bring politics into it, but it will be interesting to see how uh, Trump's uh, po uh, policies on China and manufacturing right. affect the Kickstarters in, right. going forward because he wants to impose 
a lot of taxes on anything that's imported into our country, especially if uh, it's made in China, uh, which will make manufacturing a lot more expensive for smaller businesses that can't afford to either build their own factories in the United States or maybe who, <laughs> there, since there aren't many factories right now, you know, we don't have the, the ability to outsource that. The cost of outsourcing has already gone up um, significantly over time. For Chinese manufacturing? For Chinese manufacturing. It has, but it's still relatively low. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if we impose these new taxes, it's going to be a, it's going to be a lot harder. I mean, it's it's a trade off. Like like they've built a system over there to not just be they don't want, they don't want to be the world's factory, but to to facilitate fast manufacturing. Right. They can they can turn over one type of production, do small runs, and do it so much quicker. Um, it's kind of astounding. I mean, I, I think I think like what was that story I read about? Um, there are just like entire cities built in China just for manufacturing like Christmas toys and dollar store items. Hmm. And like it, it and then th there are markets where shoppers from all of like wholesalers from all of the world like shop there and buy in quantity and when we say in quantity like tens of thousands of products to fill the dollar stores of America. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about even selling things for, you know, a dollar, two dollars and still making money from that. Like that's how cheaply things are still being made because that's that's the churn. Yeah. Um, speaking of politics, uh, we are getting a lot of technology companies responding to what's happening in current events uh, from the protests. And, you know, there's obviously Uber and Lyft and um, what's going on there. Uber uh, now pledging money to ACLU, Lyft pledging money before them. Um, and <laughs> Uber got a lot of bad press this past week. Yeah. I, I know we'll never see the numbers, but I'll be really curious how many people actually deleted the app from that. From that, It must have been measurable. But you know what? Like, I'm curious if this, how many people deleted the app, shared the screenshot, and then downloaded the app immediately afterward. Like, yeah. the convenience that Uber brings is really tough to fight against. And, right. And yes, there's the alternative, Lyft. Right. But it had to be significant enough that Uber made that statement and you know they sent messages out to customers because it could swing hard one way and they didn't want to snowball. Can we get some context? Why did people delete the Uber app? So it, it's kind of it, – it's a strange situation. There, there, because of the, of the uh, travel ban, there were protests that emerged at airports and the one at JFK emerged and the taxi commission uh, – uh, stopped essentially went on strike for a limited period of time about an hour that they weren't providing service to JFK because uh in protest of of the travel ban uh so normally Uber has surge pricing that comes into play when there's all these people trying to get to a location so surge pricing was in effect they remove surge pricing in this case uh which they've done in the past anytime there's been some sort of protest or or some sort of you know, issue a public need. So they're not trying to appear like they're gouging people, uh, uh, trying to get somewhere of, of cultural import. People saw that maneuver of them uh, taking off surge pricing as trying to undercut the taxi commission strike and uh, took that as Uber being relentless uh, and vicious, which they've have a earned reputation around. Uh, and I, I, that's where the the call to delete Uber came from. And also, there was an internal memo that got leaked from from their CEO talking about how they really want to work with the administration, and that's politicizing it to the extreme. Um, but 
I don't like the truth is somewhere in between. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and you have to remember like David Pluff, who was like Obama's chief of staff, is like heads communications at Uber. So the politics go both ways within that organization. I'm sure. Um, it was just there was some mob mentality too that took over uh, of people being like they were looking looking to be angry at something. And yeah. the thing is, like when you when you need an Uber, you install the app. I mean, if if they deleted the app, that's one thing. But will they actually stop using it? Right. Absolutely. Um, well, one other maybe positive thing, or maybe we'll, we'll see if they actually came from the protests, but Twitter is finally responding. And Twitter has become more relevant than ever, at least in this sphere, in, in the tech community, um, in being vocal about politics these days. And Twitter, um, their VP of engineering uh, announced, of course, via Twitter, that they have heard the uh, the user's complaints about abuse on its platforms and is finally starting to address that faster and rolling out product changes uh, in the in the coming days and weeks. Isn't this like a year late? It is way late. What it the hell? It is way, way late. And also not being very specific. Yeah, which is how they've always responded to this in the past. It feels like lip service. Uh, oh, until they... I, I think t- Twitter has to demonstrate action on this. Uh, and And the impact of this has been shown like twitter as a platform hasn't been growing at the same rate as its as its counterparts whether it's facebook or otherwise and some people indicate that this abuse uh, is is part of the reason why what action would you like to see uh i actually would like to see easier tools to report abuse um and right now i think it, it's sort of onerous i'd like to see them take stronger stances on banning individuals even uh, if they're verified, even if they, you know, and if you're gonna have a community that is that purports to be about, um, you know, uh, exchange of ideas and freedom, those people curb that behavior. Uh, so I think it's it's a stand they can take, uh, and uh, like to see them actually enforce it. I think as it stands, we've only seen like a handful of people ever really get banned off the platform. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of that I think is because their fear of of being irrelevant. Um, and their fear that if they push people, uh, even even the bad ones, away from their platform, um, then they're going to lose. They're going to lose to Facebook, which also isn't really doing anything. And really, Facebook, more so than any other network, is fostering some of these communities. I would think there there's two things at odds here. There's that identity of Twitter, like going back to the Arab Spring, of being a place of free speech and uh, – that is at odds with the fact that they need revenue and advertisers don't like that. I, 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 at least I would think that advertisers don't like this kind of reports of abuse on the platform because who the hell is going to pay attention to ads on a system where you're getting picked on? It's really interesting to compare a platform like Twitter to something like Instagram. You know, both on their face, very similar social networks for sharing and building community, one text-based, one image-based. But on Instagram, you're seeing very little of the politicizing and it maybe speaks to how users see the platform and what they go to that platform for. But Instagram, you, it's like if you browse Instagram, you would not know that there are these, a lot of these protests happening as much as if you are on Twitter and maybe it's working to their Instagram and Facebook's benefit. They can better sell those ads. Oh, it's a bad side. It's the downside of being a public company. You know, I mean, if there's no reason that Twitter should, 
I mean, they should be able to police this just all that they need to, and they'll, they'll make just as much money as they'd ever need. But when you're a public company, you got to keep expanding, and of course, they're going to be terrified of that. And it's not an easy job, even if you build in algorithms to try to help suss that stuff out. Even though I'm a big pro of this, I don't think this is Twitter's biggest problem. I think Twitter's biggest problem is that there's a big hurdle for users to come on board because it doesn't really know what it is on some level. Yeah, yeah that's certainly true. Yeah, And when you say Twitter is a publishing platform... Not sexy for those millennials. Yeah. Um, speaking of algorithms and AI, uh, I think last week we talked about the AI yeah. facing off against poker players. Uh, this big competition of multiple days, weeks of play. Things weren't looking good for the humans last no, week. Oh no, no, no. Heads up poker. But Texas we must have on. come back. We're humans. We <laughs> rise above. Uh, so do we have an update? Yeah. Uh, we got demolished. We got absolutely destroyed. No, every, so. every human ended up negative, owing money to the robot. <laughs> <laughs> and now the robot a bounty hunter is going to come collecting. Exactly. You know, the, the robot ended up kind of like $1.7 million in his back pocket. <laughs> yep. So that's it. There's, is, there's is no... it solved? Like, the question is does this prove that? Heads up poker is as, as an AI challenge. Is that solved? I, I think Carnegie Mellon thinks so. Um, and Adding to the list of games that that's true. And, and and like you said last week, you know, this doesn't mean there's a generalizable AI yet. This is you know just really specific AI that couldn't beat you in other domains. That's right. But they do think that this AI has particular skill sets that would lend itself towards that kind of learning because the, it heads up no limits uh, Texas Hold'em poker. Did I say that right? Uh, it involves a lot of unknowns and, uh, you know, variables that they have to ascertain, guess at, uh, use instinct. And then you also have to bluff your opponent, know when to bluff, know when they might be bluffing. There's a lot of what we might consider like subconscious thought. Would you like this AI when you sat down to be like, I have a particular set of skills? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm walking away. <laughs> I think it's cool. Yeah. I don't know if it's cool. I do. I'm, a, I'm starting to get a little terrified. The thing is, I mean... <laughs> sign me, where can I sign up to be the avatar for the AI? Hold the cards. <laughs> I know there must be... So what happens if I go on an, on an online gambling site right now yeah. and I use a, uh, a tool in order to help me gamble, like assistant, an assi a gambling assistant to play, help me play my cards? That's got to be against the rules. But now, like, if this kind of AI is out there... How long until this gets into somebody's hands and they just they rule every table? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how big online poker is these days. I know it was absolutely, absolutely big in the thousands, um, but you're right. Like, there's no way to check that. Like, yeah, you could just have another computer playing for you, and then you would literally be the avatar for the AI, just inputting that's right the bet commands on a computer, making money for yourself, giving your AI partner cut. <laughs> uh, but then eventually, you're just gonna have you know, AI against AI. That's right. Exactly. And it's going to be how convincing is the avatar in making it look like it's a real person to as long beat the other, the over, Overwatch AI algorithm that's watching to see your bets. As long as one of them's wearing like sunglasses upside down so they have a little personality <laughs> to them like those poker players, I'm all in. <laughs> all in. I don't know, man. It's going to be a weird future. Uh, in a little bit more uh, somber news, um, a report came uh, last week. We had um, locally the uh, unexpected sudden deaths of 
uh, two game developers. One is a game developer. One is a, a his wife was a postdoctoral researcher at a local uh, science institute. And this is all unconfirmed yeah. um, for the most part. But the coroner ruled their death um, suspicious, and there has been indication that they died from asphy- asphyxiation from carbon monoxide. Yeah, CO poisoning. And now they don't know where that CO source would be, and there's still additional tests being run. But one uh, news outlet reported they had a commercial laser cutter in their house uh, that the um, husband was using to help design one of his games. Yeah, and there's a lot of misinformation going around because of the terminology being used. Um, The report that I read from, I believe, uh, Berkeley side um, said that there's a 3D printer and a 3D laser printer as well. Um, and well, it is three-dimensional laser printer. <laughs> sure, and, and, and I got some some texts from some friends like, did you know that 3D printers can kill people? Really? Like, you got texts from, from people yeah. because of this news? Yeah, and I'm like, no, 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 no. First of all, I don't think the 3D printer is at fault here. I don't know what happened, uh, obviously, but if I think what the people are concluding is that it was a a commercial laser cutter that they had. Now, uh, the story was posted on Y Combinator and uh, Dan Shapiro of Glowforge immediately responded They in saying Glowforge was not involved in this. It was not a Glowforge. Uh, but it speaks to a point of, like, we don't know whether they were running, and if it was the laser cutter at fault, uh, if they were running a, a high-end commercial one or a hobby laser cutter, a CO2 laser cutter. Um, and if so, the point remains, if you are looking to buy a hobby cutter like or even a professional cutter like safety is the number one thing and i don't right. think these people like i can't believe that they weren't safe and because it sounds like they were educated and they had a lot of experience using the machines so either it was a freak accident um or I, like who knows what could have happened but you know these are serious machines we don't have information from the coroner that this is the cause of death even so well as far as if it was carbon monoxide that wouldn't come from the laser cutter we're talking about they would be cutting materials and releasing gases yeah yeah so like for example you'd never want to cut pvc right right and uh, a lot of laser cutters and come with and you can look up online guides for uh, materials you can and can't cut um and proper ventilation obviously is a really important thing when um, when running a laser cutter and having, you know, CO2 detectors in your house is that's like that's like legally mandated in uh, in California. Um, so a lot of variables at play. Uh, we don't want to jump to conclusions, but it bears repeating that if you are running a hobby cutter or a hobbyist, which any type of hobbyist uh, CNC type machine, um, you know, safety should always be first, and it's going to prompt us to looking and doing some some content to talk about safety and um, when using these machines. Get a carbon monoxide detector in your shop. Hunter, I, you know, homes should have carbon every, monoxide. Every room that's should right. have one. Every room? Is that Not a, every room. I, I think that's, I think it's a square footage. Yeah, hmm. yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but was yeah. that a game developer, did you say? Yeah, uh, the guy, Roger Marash, he worked at, I want to say Harmonix. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was at MIT. Uh, he and his wife were both at MIT, I think. And uh, they were friends of people we know. Mm. Yeah. Well, there was another game developer them. that died this past week, too. Uh, John Carmack tweeted about him. Oh. He was his right hand man at, at id Whoa. from the Quake 3 on. Mm-hmm. And he did, a, he actually, he goes way back. He made one of the uh, original bots, I think the Omicron bot for Quake 1. He was a, just a modder back then, and he got hired to id. 
um, worked with Carmack until Carmack went to um, Oculus, went with him. Wow. And Carmack said he is the best engineer he ever worked with. And he was his right-hand man, and he'll be missed. Wow. No, I don't know how he died. Like that, I couldn't find that info, but sad. Made the original Omicron bot. Do you remember back in the day? And I know this is to jump off of sad news. Uh, back in the day when people were coding bots themselves, and you would research which bots would be the most fun to play against and download that bot for, for Quake or Quake 2. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. Um, uh, we have uh, some Hyperloop news to close off our technology news segment. We should give the Hyperloop refresher. This yep. is our Elon Musk update segment now. Uh, I always think when I think Hyperloop, I think of Futurama and the tubes that were used to transport people around. And this is that idea of using tubes as with a vehicle in it, some sort of pod, to transport people across a great number of distances uh, using you know a variety of systems, most of which rely on magnetic levitation to reduce um, resistance and or friction um, and do it uh, at fairly high speeds. And uh, we, I guess we have two stories out of this. One is that the Hyperloop had um, a competition of 27 teams actually got to test out in a um, test Hyperloop tube they created near SpaceX headquarters. Uh, and there's video from some of these tests. Some of these pods got up to 50 miles an hour, and a lot of them were designed to levitate. My favorite one used a Hallback array, which is this idea of using magnets in this array that uh, the magnetic field is directional to create the levitation. Uh, I'll post some um, uh, links to the video of it of it going, but they awarded some winners um, from them uh, of these different designs. And they're going to go on to the next step. Hmm. That's super cool. You know, are these all self-funded? I mean, Elon Elon hasn't put up money, has he? No. I mean, these groups are like from academic centers and research centers and stuff. So like MIT had a Right. With with the goal of of maybe producing a train based on Elon Musk's designs. They're competing for prize money. Oh, they are. If you win the competition. Okay. You know, when I was at Disney, uh, I guess a week and a half ago now at Epcot, I thought about the Hyperloop because they, they have the people mover and they have the monorail and a lot of that stuff at Disney is, you know, the retro future, like your world's fair of 1960s or what did the future look like back then, which is fun and nostalgic now. But is there a, uh, I know there, they do world's fairs still like Shanghai had one a couple of years ago, but are there places and institutes set up where you can see the fu- like the dreamed future of today? Well, like the whole idea of having futurists, that used to be a thing. Like people would bring futurists on the, the news to talk about what the future might be. I feel like that's a dying art because it's be, the, the curve has gotten so high that it's gotten more and more difficult to predict the future. And maybe the visualization of that is so unimpressive because it's so easy to imagine everything with CG. Yeah. Like to visualize it. Um, you have companies like Google, Microsoft, they, they all put out these videos like showing... Uh, how how they imagine their futurists and their research labs, R&D labs, um, like imagine the technologies they're working on today stretch to their farthest, right? Uh, but they all end up looking the same because they're all just augmented reality, CG worlds. Yeah, right. And there's no real point of going to a World's Fair or going somewhere to try that technology because 
the, the, the time from development to consumer release seems to be so short that anything that's mm-hmm. be showing, it's like, oh, okay, it's like a CES. We'd like, is that really, like, is that re- like, I mean, consumers are smarter too. Like, they're, we are less wowed by, by these things. Um, or is, or is it just that our jaded perspective today? Like, would these, these types of attractions and fairs 50 years down be just as novel and nostalgic as we find, you know, the World's Fair of 1964? Yeah, um, I miss that. I, I miss that those tangible things. And maybe the closest thing that we get to, to seeing some of that is like a maker fair or or robotics or like the DARPA. Yeah, the DARPA challenge, challenge where you see the mechanical like advances. Where walking around and seeing how you know labs are working on prosthetic arms, like mm-hmm. that stuff is mechanic mechanical. You can't fake that. That stuff looks cool no matter what, and that's that's a tangible, real like piece of prototype technology. But when it's something conceptual, um, it's yeah. Maybe there isn't a place for that. It's it's something I lament from time to time. I mean, Wired used to have that Future Fest that was designed to be that. Was it a fair? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name of it right now. It does, I think it was yeah. Future Fest or something like that. Yeah, it does seem like there's more excitement on the lower end. Like what's what the general public has can grasp themselves. What what's what do they have access to? What can the what can you general people just make? Using the resources they can find at Radio Shack or on Adafruit. And it's a good point because back then a lot of those those showcases were sponsored by conglomerates, big companies. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the kitchen of the future brought to you by GE when GE made everything in your kitchen. Um, and now that just wouldn't play. The version of that is, like I said, CES going to the LG booth and having their washing machine dishwasher of the future. Like consumers are definitely savvier. Than that these days, it takes a lot more to, to wow us, um, for better or worse. Yeah, we're all. I guess maybe because because of the way we consume technology news and the way we consume technology and how much we, uh, and because of the internet, uh, we all have a little bit of futurist like thinking in us, and so we don't need it's 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 less impressive when um, I mean I guess the TED Talk is maybe a good example of that. A, 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 the good analog when you have a stage and someone is showing things for the first time things that they've worked for 10 years on um, but yeah definitely not yeah because it's not it's not just about technology it's like you really have to understand a lot of aspects of mankind you know like sociology like how education is going to change over the next 10 years mm-hmm. that has as much to do with technology as it does to do with you know just general how do you want to raise your kids and parenting philosophy and yeah, there's a lot to it, and you're right. Um, I think the TED Talks are probably a good in, in on that. And, and maybe the thing that I am missing is that tangible demonstration of these things, which they spent a lot of money on, Disney and, and the World's Fair spent money on building out showcases, uh, and those demonstrations stand the test of time and are a piece of history, um, and we don't have those these days because no one wants to spend money building building a park or or show about what the future could be in 50 years. Um, Did you read about Elon Musk and his shovel? No. Shovel? He's got a shovel, and he's digging. Where, where's he digging? <laughs> Where he's allowed to. Now, I guess he's upset about the uh, the, the traffic in L.A. I don't know. I, he might not be alone. Okay. But I think maybe he's upset about the traffic in L.A., and he's considered what would it be like if there were a networked series of tunnels on the ground that were 3D. You know, not not just like one tunnel, 
but th- 30 layers of tunnels. You're talking about the screensaver maze, the, the, the pipes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the window N- screensaver pneumatic pipes. Pneumatic tubes. You put that's your where, car you got the into, idea. A t- into a little capsule and you got shot to your destination. I always liked the idea that his inspiration is coming from Dig Dug. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not bad. So, like, it's the basic principle here that, like, we can only go up so much and that's a limitation. So what if we no, go no, down? He, he says it's perfectly plausible to consider some sort of three-dimensional, um, you know, traffic system in the sky. But it's probably more feasible and more realistic to consider going downward. So he, he wants to consider an array of tunnels in order to alleviate the traffic congestion Is he building robots in Los Angeles. These tunnels? Well, no. So what he's doing is he's, he's dug a hole on the SpaceX property where you're allowed to dig without any kind of government approval. Okay. And it's a test hole. It's what, like 30 feet by test like 70 hole. feet. Like thir- I love it. 30 by 70 and like, I don't know, like 30 feet down or something like that. And um, I mean, all the dimensions are right here. So um, what is he trying to figure out in this okay, first iteration? 30 by 50 by 15 feet deep. That's a hole. Um, yeah, it's a serious hole and it's a test trench. And there, he wants, all he wants to do is improve the efficiency of boring. Oh, he's, that's a big deal. He's, so he's testing. So he wants to get to the. the I mean, when you talk about uh, dreaming up a future where you have an infrastructure of tunnels, yes. which I, I, th- I actually think I, I can see that making a lot of sense. Yep. Um, you want to automate that. The only way that's going to actually be built out is if you have robots dig all your tunnels, build infrastructure. You know, I don't know if robots need to do it. Yeah, it just needs to be more efficient. It needs to be much more efficient, for sure. Yeah. Especially if you're going to have a complex network so, underground. Mr. Musk says he thinks he can improve boring. Well, he thinks you know, the people he knows can improve boring by 500 to 1,000%. These are Elon's shower thoughts. Again, he, once again. I remember he tweeted these, like, I, I, a boring company. The boring company. And I love that he right. can just have this happen on a whim. Like, go dig a hole, see what you can do. And I love this quote. This is a Wired article, and the quote is, we have no idea what we're doing. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> That's so, great. Does well, that excuse, does that make it okay for him to do it? To just say, we have no idea, but we're the, doing it on the private thing property. Is, like, anybody who's experimenting with boring efficiencies starts out at that, at that place, and he just doesn't have the ego. You know, he, I think he has the ego. You're right. So he You've got to have the ego but, to do but His it. ego is so well fortified <laughs> that he can, he can say, He's I have no idea. He's burying a giant 30-foot no hole in his, on his exactly. giant property exactly. is what's happening. Those SpaceX like, mass emails must be weird. Like, hey, guys, we're digging a <laughs> hole. <laughs> you know, that brings us. Uh, so I want to remind people uh, the sponsor of this week's episode of This Only Test is the new upcoming Fox show, APB. And uh, Fox, what they wanted to do was something we haven't done before, they present a uh, a talking segment on our podcast, uh, something about technology. Uh, The show is, essentially, it's about a a Tony Stark or Elon Musk-type character, billionaire, CEO of company, who takes over a police precinct in Chicago and introduces technologies uh, like drones and tasers and you know, uh, track cars and apps um, to try to solve crime. And it pits the question of what would happen if private companies or a single person with the resources went into the public sphere. Um, so I got three questions to pose to you guys that I want to discuss that are related to this concept. And I think we touched on a little bit of this when talking about Elon Musk. Um, if someone like Elon Musk was given free reign to just control, let's say, an area he's interested in, transportation, clearly, whether it's through boring tunnels or through electric vehicles, 
transportation in a city. What would that city look like? And would you sign up? Free reign? Wow. Yeah. Are we talking about we, we can teleport into the future after he's already accomplished his infrastructure changes? No, I, I think... I, I, no, I don't think he's accomplished. At this point, he's accomplished. If he's had the, the money, the monetary resources, the yeah. R&D, the R&D of SpaceX and Tesla at his disposal, and let's say, let's not even say a big city, Alameda, okay? Okay. If the city, of, if he went to the city of Alameda, and I guess it doesn't make a lot of sense because there's a lot, of, a lot of traffic congestion in Alameda. So let's say like Los Angeles, a, a suburb, like a part of Los Angeles, and he said, I want to spend my billions uh-huh. easing traffic congestion infrastructure is, would that be good? How would you think he would go about it? And would you want to live in that in that city? I think the first thing he would do is he would displace like an eighth of the city and just be like, leave. Because this is my new experimental area. Yeah. And like every Tuesday, you'd be able to go down to the experimental area and test out some sort of new invention. D- displacing the people kind of... Defeats the, the purpose. the purpose. The point is to Whatever. help those people who live their lives, right? <laughs> like, I think he would say, I no was, more cars. I was voting you for president a few days ago on Twitter. <laughs> I, I want to take back my vote. That's what? horrible. Eminent domain, man. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, I think he would do something like, one, no more buses and t- Teslas only. I definitely think there would be a push for public transport. I think that I think a, a massive train system would be would be beneficial, like a really great public transportation system, electric. You know, just absolutely on time, and frequent and fast. I you know I was downtown the other day. Have you been to Minneapolis, St. Paul, Never Twin Cities? They have a series of tubes that connect a lot of the downtown um, buildings. Elevated tubes. Yeah. Uh, yes, elevated and below ground too. Okay. Uh, and the idea is like during the winter. It allows, you know, sort of free transportation with when the streets aren't useful. I would have to say that's one of the like the areas that I wonder if you would rethink pedestrian traffic in a no way. No more sidewalks. Hamster tunnel, hamster tube. Because pedestrians and and vehicles, whether they're they're buses or any other transport systems, are at odds. Yeah, and in I would like I know there's a lot of bureaucracy that prevents things like boring boring a tunnel infrastructure. Um I would love to see just that experiment. If if a billionaire wanted to spend their resources building out uh, a hyperloop, like or a like their his his version of Bart to get from East Bay to San Francisco, um, I say I'm I would, all for it, man. I would go for it, and I would I would want to try it. The whole hyperloop idea came out of his frustration with an official government sanctioned plan to create a train that's going to go from LA to San Francisco, yeah, and it's not even going to be finished for like 50 years. Or something like that. So the, the question is, then, who's accountable if something goes wrong? And you would just, that's under the assumption that the bureaucracy that prevents this stuff from happening in the innovation is because uh, there's, the bureaucracy is a byproduct of the safety regulations um, and not just, you know. No lowest con- common denominator in Elon Musk City. I think you have to sign a waiver. You're like opting in. Well, it's like I talked about how uh, in Disney, you know, Disney owns like the property that um, all the Dis- uh, Disney World. Sure. <laughs> like, of course they do. Like, uh, it's not, it's outside of Orlando, right? But oh. it's, it's not Orlando the city. Oh, is that right? It's, but it's, and people say Orlando because it's really close by. It's like, you know, yeah. 15 miles away. Uh, but it's uh, right outside a suburb of Orlando where Disney World is 50 square miles. Now, technically, it's still a city like regul- regulated by Florida, right? And um, and the county there, but 
they granted Disney special rights so that um, they could form the city, one, and where the boundaries are. And then Disney hires its employees or pays some, selects some of its employees to live and be the official, um, the, the council people of that city and the mayor. So there is a mayor of Disney World who maybe has no political experience. Who elected this mayor? No one elected the mayor. <laughs> well, the people, so Disney said, okay, uh, we need someone to pass, help pass the laws and give us the rights to do whatever infrastructure changes we need. Yeah. So we're going to hire you, Bob, who's been an engineer at Disney, an Imagineer at Disney for 50, 30 years. All right. Would you like to live and be the mayor of Disney World? Bob says, yes. What do I need to do? Well, move your family to Disney World and they have a, a house, live on property. And as long as you vote our way, during the council meetings, you can continue being the mayor. Oh, this is what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Boo. Boo. Yeah, so uh, I would, I would, nom- would want to live in Elon Town, Musk, Musk City. Yeah, I mean, I would too. I mean, assuming I could also leave if, no. <laughs> if I chose. I would, if I had a choice of like Elon Musk running transportation or some other like company or person coming in to run our, some other aspect, I don't think Elon Musk running transportation is my pain point. Yeah. I feel like communication's a bigger pain yeah, point. Yeah, so let's for... step it up. You know, transportation is a big deal, it's a lot of public safety concerns, but um what if if Steve Jobs was around and he could do whatever he want, what part of the public safety? Oh, I can't do afford to live there. He would he would want to control. <laughs> <laughs> I would say what I mean, just what well, uh, the other day I went to I live across the street from a cafe. I opened up my computer. There's 20, 50 different wireless networks that I saw, I think there'd be a single portal for communication to the internet. Yeah, like I think one wireless network the internet. for the entire town. Well, isn't that kind of what Google wanted to do yep. with Google Fiber? Moving in and they, they build the pipes. They, they said you know the cities weren't moving fast enough, so they came in and they put the pipes down. Uh, to give gigabit fiber to but, a lot of small towns, but well, the, and in San Francisco, they thought about putting up a Wi-Fi network too. Yeah, a public Wi-Fi network. Yeah, um, didn't pan out. I think that that's like achievable. Yeah, though. definitely. Yeah, uh, like so that would be number one. I think there'd be a streamlining there. Uh, I think there'd be a, a push to uh, like digital everything, like UI. Like his yeah. ex- Apple's expertise is UX and UI. Mm-hmm. And if there's any part of the public sphere where I would want to see a company or someone like a Steve Jobs or a Johnny Ive um, take over. It's like I would love to live in a city where he designed all the UI and the UX. That'd be great. The city. You guys are thinking like Urban about consumer problems, and I think the the companies are going to think about it as like a revenue problem. Like how how do they make money off this? And it's not just city planning. I mean, I think that there'd probably be some element of advertising involved. Well, you got to think at this at at the point where it's. Where it's a, a billionaire CEO or a, yeah. a Johnny Ive or Johnny or Elon Musk type character, yeah. it's it's personal. Also, but, it's not just a money making thing. They've achieved the money. It's about right. them wanting to build the world they want to live in. Right, but the city's always going to be crunching the numbers, and they want to do it cheap. But and these things are going to cost money. I think that, they, that if they worked in some sort of uh, advertising into the system, yeah, I think that that could actually be a positive thing, especially as advertising gets more and more tailored to be relevant to my interests. Uh, and the, these companies are very good at this, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, Facebook and, and Amazon. I mean, the closest I think we're going to get to an Apple design city is their their spaceship headquarters. And you got to imagine Johnny Ive is, is, is 
he's deep in the design process of that, like that building yeah. and all the, the experience of all, of all the, like the the park space in there. I don't know if he had that much to say on that. I, I think there was a story where like that was his, that was one of his passion projects. Johnny Ives, really? Yeah. Oh, because I know that, that Steve Jobs went to he you know he got his favorite architect to work on it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, UX. I think what you experienced at Disney World is something we'd see in this town. Single bracelet RFID right. that did everything. Yeah. Now you're you. talking, right? That's psh, talk about yeah, like we talked about last week. That's real metrics. I mean, isn't that you could really kinda, advertise to people with that? Isn't that what Apple kind of wants to do with the watch? Yeah, eventually, it's just a better overall experience too. Doing everything, right? Where where Disney they can force and say, you know, because of the fast track system, it makes so much sense. Like you can't. Yes, you can opt out of the wristband of the Magic Band. But you're going to have a far super inferior experience if you don't have it than if you did have it. Um, that's how Apple would want to say, you got to wear the watch. Is the, Living in the city your with the watch, it's your ID, is it's that, everything. Is that data public information? Is my alibi now a matter of public record? If, no. if there's a murder that takes place? You know, can they? Can I prove with my watch? Can the city pull up my watch data and say show where I was? That sounds, yeah. like, that sounds like the plot of a science fiction show. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I do like it. It's I, like it's a little bit more Singapore than it is the U.S. Like the collective as opposed to individual liberty. But I like it. All right, I got one last question for you guys. Um, in these kind of concept shows, you know, uh, there are always technologies that we never see coming that the the people have behind the scenes, um, like. For example, in this show, they see uh, they have like a drone that has you know thirty five like uh, hours of battery life. Just something that's we know as people who follow drones is a little far fetched. Is there? Do you think technology that is that Elon or or Tim Cook has access to today that they're not ready to release because they, it's part of their product pipeline, but that that is so far ahead of what we have now. I mean, it's sci-fi, but I will, I've always wondered if they really can do that facial recognition that we see in sci-fi movies, where like a CC you know camera picks you off and they just like know who you are. I think the fact that Elon Musk and the executives at Google have had things to say about AI recently sa- says that they have some spooky stuff behind closed doors. You're the- talking about, but da- data is the thing that they have. Yeah, that they're not revealing right now. But also, like maybe you know something approaching a generalized AI that applies that data. You and know? it's it's so scary creepy. because it's waiting to be productized, or it's scary because they they think they don't have a grasp on it yet. Uh, yeah, I mean it's scary just to think that they're in charge of productizing it. You know, I mean if they they've managed to develop something that is potentially dangerous, or enabling and helpful. You know, th- to imagine you know what. To know that that you have nothing to say on how that gets applied. Oh, what do you either of you watch The Good Place? No, it's a, it's a NBC show and uh, it, it's based in the afterlife. But they have a universal assistant called Janet that has a human form that is this generalized AI. You can just call Janet just like the computer in in Star Trek: Next Generation brought it back. Um, Janet is that the thing? that's the the name of the of the AI that just can do everything. Hmm. And I think that would be amazing in this town. Like if they there is a Janet out there. You know, last week we talked about how one of the future technologies that we see coming up is the ability to perfectly duplicate speech. Like we talked Roger Ebert, how he put oh, yeah. names. I watched that TED Talk, by the way. Yeah, and uh, we actually had talked about this before. I forgot that Adobe had demonstrated something at oh, the yeah. conference uh, just this last fall that is that technology 
where they call it you know, colloquially it's Photoshop for audio, <laughs> but it's uh, Voco is the tech, is the the demo voice conversion where you input a couple words and then they can uh, it's a lot you know, twenty minutes of of data, and after you input twenty minutes of your voice data, they can fill in the gaps and add words to your sentences, replace words, search for words, and and do it pretty seamlessly. Uh, that is interesting and scary technology at the same time. But I, I would believe that they have like someone like Apple has access to that. I mean, I I want to hear that voice. I want to use that technology. That does sound fun, but it does. It does cause for trouble in the courtroom. And if you yeah, if you can't trust something like voice, and it's almost like, you know, voice, for imaging imaging is, is, is already a lost cause. So you can fake imaging and you That's need right. image experts. But now you're going to need voice analyzing experts. My voice is my passport. Right. Everything's going to be recorded at higher bit rates. It's just like high resolution for photos. You're going to need higher bit rates um, for voice for everything. Why? So to be the standard bearer. If you think of the analog for imagery, right? Mm -hmm. Because Photoshop is manipulating images and video is so easy these days, you have to rely on higher and higher resolution video to make it tougher for that to be spoofed. Hmm. You're going to need higher and higher quality audio to make it tougher for that to be spoofed. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to our next segment. It's time for a moment of science. Jeremy, would you like to play a game? You can do better than that. No, I don't want to. Would you like to play a game? No, I'm not saying I'm great at it. You're referencing Joshua from War Games. Yeah, would you like to yes. play a game? Yes, I okay. would. I would. Chess so let's put something at stake here. We have 20 wait, wait, American wait, wait, wait. dollars. Is, it, is there a chance I might lose my money here? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Jeremy, yeah. what is your preference? Uh-huh. Uh, the blue candy cane or the red cane? Ooh, or the orange candy like cane? like the Matrix. I will take the blue candy cane. Okay, you're going to get both, but I'm just going to need to ask that. All right, we're going to play a, ga- a common game that's been studied significantly in game theory. I'm going to have you sl- select a candy cane, okay. and I'm going to do the same. So I to describe blue people out there, there are two small candy canes in front of Jim right now. One is blue and red, and one is green and orange. Um I, Same too, like Kishore. Jeremy, I would prefer the blue and red. Okay. So we're going to play a game mm-hmm. where we select one candy cane. And here are the rules. If you select a blue and red and I select a blue and red because that's your favorite, we're going to split the $20 total here and we're each going to walk away with $10. Oh, okay. So the idea is we both put in 10 bucks here? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you choose the blue but i choose the orange yeah i get all 20 bucks oh okay if i choose the blue and you choose the orange you get all the 20 bucks uh, wait wait wait, if wait, we wait. Well, this both... is very elaborate so you're asking jeremy to make a choice mm-hmm. and i'm gonna make a choice at the take. same and i'm gonna make a choice and kishore's gonna make a choice as well at the same time but you guys can talk about it i'm on dayquil man and <laughs> but and here's the rub ready if we both choose orange, we yeah. get nothing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right? Uh-huh. So uh, go ahead and, and turn away and make your choice. This is a, you know, a variant of the Prisoner's Dilemma, which is a long-studied uh, game when it comes to game theory. What, now, about, what do you want me to do with these? 
You want just me to... hold one in your hand. But you guys what, have what to talk about, about, about the other one, it, right? Well, well, we can talk about it. What about it? the other one? Talk about it. Mm-hmm. Do I hold them both in my hand? No, just choose pick the one. one. Choose the one that you want and drop the other one. And the idea is that your chosen color is blue, Jeremy. So your yeah. ideal scenario right. is if you want all the money. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. But okay. what do you want me to do? Hide them both? So I'm going to talk in a moment about a study that right. did a month long look at how uh, at results of people that played this game constantly over a long period of time, what the Ooh. results were. Um, can do you, you, can do you, you want me to actually introduce a little game theory in here yes, when we please. talk? Yes. Hey, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to choose the orange candy cane, no matter what. Well, can I change my mind now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to choose it no matter what. See, that's what I was going to say. I'm going to choose it no matter what. No, I'm going to choose orange no matter what. That's what I was going to say. Then we're going to get nothing, but because I'm definitely going to choose the orange. Yeah. But here's the thing. If yeah. you choose the, the blue um, and take the money, um, split it with me. Uh, I'll split the money with you. Mm-hmm. So I've I'm going to choose the orange. Yeah. I'm going to do this to him. All right. Yeah. I'm going to choose the orange for sure. I don't want to lose my money, Jeremy. Um. And I'll share the money with you afterwards. Okay. I'm definitely going to choose orange. Yeah, but the thing is, I'm choosing orange as well. No, don't then be we're so stubborn. Get nothing. No. Someone should be not stubborn. I understand. I understand, but I'm going to choose orange. I'm letting you know that, and I will split the money with you if you so choose the blue. If they both okay. choose orange, I get the money? <laughs> <laughs> what would you do, Norm? Um, I would trust, and I would... You would I choose would, the blue? I would choose the blue and trust that... Uh, Whoever, like, I think in this scenario, so I, I think what we're getting at is if someone is is one hundred percent has the conviction of of uh, burn it, like burn the world down, unless you do one thing, hold and hold your decision hostage. Whoever acted first to make that conviction, you are at their mercy, and there is no there is no negotiating at that point. Right, you can only hope for the best case scenario. Okay, should we go? Shall we find out? Yep. Okay, on three, one, one two, two, three. three. You did do the orange. I told orange you and blue. Yeah. Jeremy, and so Jeremy uh, gets it, all the money? Jeremy uh, chose orange, and I chose uh, blue, and Jeremy gets all the money. Wow, never, never. <laughs> what a shark. Now, here's the... Jeremy, I'll take my cut. Never have a land war in Asia when death is on the line. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing. So... Uh, this is a variant on the Prisoner's Dilemma game. What what we did was um, reminiscent of this game on the in that was aired in the UK called Golden Balls. And there's a really famous clip that's the basis of a Radiolab uh, episode. And I'll put the link to that uh, video in the show notes. But the, these researchers studied this for a month uh, and the resiliency uh, and what the outcomes were. And they found a few interesting things that the nicer people, the people that were essentially choosing the the blue candy cane, you know, ended up having really positive impacts on the group as a whole. And your resiliency to be nice typically waned as you played it more and more. So if you played it over a day, over the course of a day, multiple times, you started to get meaner over that period of time. Because it became a game, I would imagine. Yeah, it's just a little bit of a reflection of human sociology. Also, they didn't really have $10,000 at stake. But when you walked away, uh, they did have real money at stake. Oh, they did. But not that level of money. Yeah. Um, but if you walked away and like took a break, cut it off a little bit, and came back, you tended to reset a little bit of your niceness. So short-term memory agitation. It, it, like the generalized comment um, on a Reddit thread about this was that, hey, maybe if trolls are bothering you, walk away. 
and come back and be nicer. I mean, that's that's sort of a funny comment, but the idea that the nicer people benefited the the larger group as a whole because their willingness to share and their resiliency to share benefited everyone in terms of the overall share and their and their sort of satisfaction at the end of the day. Interesting. I'll put a link to the study. It's it's kind of fun. Emma, are you going to keep those ten dollars? Are you I'll, supposed I'll... to? You said you were going to share. Oh, I did say that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Two uh, quick side stories this week. One is we got initial results from the NASA twin study. We had. Uh, two NASA astronauts, the Kelly brothers, Scott and oh, I'm forgetting his other his brother's name. Um, Scott and uh, well, Mark. Yeah, Scott and Mark. One was up on the ISS while mustache, the, no mustache. Yeah, while the other was on the Earth, and they were able to compare their samples to to understand the impacts of prolonged spaceflight in a way they haven't been able to before. They noted just really quickly that. Um, uh, the one that was in space, which was Scott, I believe, uh, he had enhanced inflammation once he returned. He had bone loss, which was expected. Uh, and his telomeres, which are the ends of your chromosomes, which are tied to um, aging processes, lengthened while he's in space. And What? Yeah. So he had some um, impacts that, you know, there's still more work going on about this. Well, what does that mean? Does he- that means, well, what, so here's just a quick aside. Um, uh, he actually is now younger. Microsecond. But that's microsecond, a matter of yeah, time. That's yeah. time. Um, we don't know what the implications of this is, uh, but potentially um, telomere lengthening could be related to him eating less, like having caloric restriction in space. Oh. It could be, um, uh, it could be uh, something to increased exercise led to this because he was on a stronger regimen while he was in space. Uh, so we don't know what, what role those factors played, or it could be something else entirely. Is there a correlation between telomere, mm-hmm. telomere length, and and longevity? Yeah, it's related to something called the Hayflick limit, which is the number of times a cell can reproduce before it dies. So he'll live longer. Uh, potentially, that's what I mean. That you can't wow. make that general generalization out to like a, a life, mm. um, but it's an interesting point to study. So we're getting starting to get initial results from that twin study. Something to keep an eye on. Um, I like to, this next story. Uh, oh, you want me to do the Kindle one? Yes. So I have a philosophical question for you, Ooh. Norm. What weighs more? Okay. A Kindle that's <laughs> brand new from Amazon <laughs> yeah. or a Kindle that's full of books? Like max capacity full of books? Full up on books. Read or unread? Does <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter. Are you sure? I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure. I'm, but, well, I'm going to say they should weigh the same. They it's should weigh the same. Data. I'm saying that too because it's transistors and transistors should weigh as much in either state. I'll bet you $10 that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually, there's a um, recent analysis out uh, that said because of how Kindles operate in terms of just how they do their computing, they actually trap electrons. To actually do some of their de- the e ink display, mm-hmm. and so a oh, so Kindle, it's not in the storage; it's in the display. Yeah, uh, or I'm sorry, in the storage. I'm okay. sorry, not in the display. Um, and because they trap electrons and they're not freely moving around, there is technically a, a weight difference when they're computing. When they yeah, after they, in, after when they, the storage is full. Now, 
wouldn't it stand to reason that a Kindle full of books read would he even have more computing because you flip through the pages than that? Well, here here's basically slightly the, more than the, the point. It like the Kindle distinguishes ones and zeros by these trapped electrons. So the idea is like when it's empty, it all have zeros and and technically way less um, than the ones w- with the one. So whether that's going to be triggered more if they're read or not, I, mm-hmm. that goes pretty deep into the code and there. How, how data is stored on yeah. You want to know how big of a difference this is in weight? Yes. 10 to the minus 18th gram. Minus 18. That's a lot of zeros. That is zeros. essentially nothing. Yeah. But it is true. What kind of a tool weighs... What's going on? How, what can weigh that? Uh, I don't know. A, a Berkeley professor did it. I don't think they actually weighed it. Is no, it, no. They didn't actually weigh they it. They just did the math. Computed this is, so the this is, this is yeah. a theory. Well, yeah. They okay. did the math. Uh, that's... That's a fun story. Uh, and then just uh, two last things real quick. I mentioned in my favorite things from last year, uh, this DIY CRISPR kit. Uh, and a gentleman in Mississippi uh, wanted to use uh, CRISPR to essentially uh, edit the genes of some dogs that he's been breeding. He's been breeding these specific set of dogs, but he hasn't been able to get rid of a genetic factor for hip dysplasia in them. And he wanted to use CRISPR to essentially do this. And the FDA has put in new regulations to hinder that sort of DIY bio type behavior. I know a lot of people commented to me and sent me questions about that um, after I I put the DIY CRISPR kit in my favorite things. Uh, So there is sort of an FDA crackdown on on these items. This is most reflected in the Glowing Beer Project. That's right. There were some people that put together a kit that allowed you to modify yeast to fluoresce, and then brew your beer with it so you can make glowing beer. Um, and then a last note. Seems like that would sell, actually. Ugh. It looked horrible. Yeah, but I bet it would sell. Uh, I don't know about People that. People would get drunk. And lastly, in this one, I'd love your feedback on the PBS show Nova, which has been around, I don't know, 30, 40 years at this point. Yeah. Just launched a Kickstarter to fund a new show. And I have to say... I don't know how I feel about that. Like, uh, I mean, it's a natural continuity for Nova, uh, <laughs> given how other shows have been financed by Kickstarter platform. Okay. Uh, and Reading Rainbow has been financed by, on Kickstarter before. Yeah. But this is a show that's currently on PBS. Yeah. And would still do that. So well, it's Are they saying they can't continue unless they get more funding? They're trying to expand their, their funding, um, you know, Funding diversity. I think you hold them to the same standards as any other media Kickstarter. If they can demonstrate through where the money's going to uh, in the campaign, then yeah. There's no question they can deliver. I mean, like, it, it's not a question whether they can produce a program. It's just this is a show that's been funded through the Corporation on Public Broadcasting before and, you know, other means. Why is David Pogue the spokesperson? He's the host of uh, Nova. Since when? Uh, for a few years. Ever really? since Neil deGrasse Tyson left. Oh, wow. Um, Nova Science Now, he took over. Um. Anyways, I think it's an interesting question. I feel sort of mixed about. I feel like if they're going to continue anyway, it's sort of like, do you want us to improve the show by giving us another million dollars? And if so, we'll improve it. If not, then we'll just do what we got to do. I don't know if it's improve it. It's just new content. Yeah. But they're going to... All right. I'll be interested if they get there. I'm not sure. 30 days, they want a million bucks. They're up to $15,000. That doesn't seem on pace. Yeah. Type that in the kick track. See what they project. Uh, by the way, I have seen the Prisoner's Dilemma 
before demonstrated in a game show. And it was a fascinating watch. I'd reckon because I sort of I knew where you were going with that. Is this the same the Golden Balls? Clip? It, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, did we mention that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it. I love it. it. It's the basis for a Radio Lab episode. It's really good. You should Google that one. I'll put it in the show notes. Right on. No. The VR minute, virtual reality this week. According to the queue, do you want me to do a second moment of science? <laughs> yeah, it would be. I think a lot of people would like that. You probably could too. Uh, I noticed one thing it, coming out in VR: Titanic VR from the makers of the group that did the Apollo Eleven VR, mm-hmm. and the, they had a demo released. The Apollo Eleven VR is the first VR app to make me tear up. I love that app. They did a great job. I so. did too, and it was the combination of historic, um, you know, audio recordings and yeah being immersed in it. What do you think about Titanic VR? I mean, you're not going to get teary being like, this is where he said. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, but it, it's a, I would love to see it. That's, it's a perfect um, use case for VR since I will never go down to those depths. And um, I, I think we have pretty accurate scans of Titanic, don't we? Uh, James Cameron's famously gone down there many times. And I think it, it sounds like a great idea. Their uh, Kickstarter, they want 53,000. They're up to 8,000. They have 28 more days. I bet you they'll get there. Well, they, they have the pedigree. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of this group, and I, I hope they get there. Are, gonna, are they going to put you in the seat of a submarine going all the way down? Yep, you can, and you're able to, like, pick up items from the seafloor. Yeah. Um, I want that claustrophobia. <laughs> oh, you want to be inside a submarine? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that submarine that James Cameron took down to yeah. the bottom of the trench? like that. It looks terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. That would be a good, that would be a scary, nice experience. I was thinking more of just being free outside of the, the sub, able to maybe uh, swim around be the Titanic. Be a ghost, walk up the Titanic, see it reconstructed. That's the thing. Your eyes. With Apollo 11, there, I don't think there was a whole lot of interactivity. Like you couldn't pilot anything. You couldn't walk around on the moon. It was all stationary stuff or the camera was locked down and you were along for a ride. I, I like the ride aspect. Yeah. And you know what? I, mean, man, like, I always go back to Disney because I love how they do those rides, but like, the Apollo 11 VR experience is the form of that kind of educational entertainment ride that I would love to see more of these parks adopt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good luck to them. Uh, PSVR news. We have the new Psychonauts VR game, the Rhombus of Ruin, launching at the end of February, February 21st. Yeah, this is a, this is a bit of a coup. I mean, they they uh, they got the they got a good app, the PSVR guys, and I know they've been they've been looking forward to this. This was trailer for, looked great. They knew about this app back when they announced PSVR, I think. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. It'll be out less what three weeks from now. Um, this is not Psychonauts two. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. an exclusive VR game by Double Fine that takes place right after Psychonauts ends. So I guess you play Zaz. Raz, and you're on a ship, and you're go, you're, or you're flying through space, going to I forget where, but it, there'll be some puzzles to solve in virtual reality. I'm curious for people who do have PSVRs, how much they're using it, and whether they have an Oculus, and and what they feel about the games, because you had Resident Evil come out this past week, RE7, which yeah. has a VR component. I have it, and it is terrifying that's a problem with these games like i can't play that i can't i, I played it I, I had to take off the vr headset i couldn't play it in vr and in vr is the full game it's first person the first resident evil it's in first person your move mechanics are your you know jumping 
30 degrees or so when you move left to right, but then mm. you can move forward laterally, no problem. But it's a game that you're, it's basically like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre style horror game where you're in a house, cannibals and monsters going after you, you're peeking around corners. It, sound is so important to this game. I was freaked out. And what are you playing it on? Uh, PSVR. PSVR. Yeah. Wow. You, can no you, thanks. Can, you can't play it in the Rift. It's not on PC yet? No. Okay. Or, uh, or Vive. Do you feel like uh, you will get more desensitized to it as more games employ the mechanic, or is it something you just won't get used to? For horror, I don't think I'm going to ever get used to horror in VR. I think horror and VR are made so well that even when you're not playing a horror game, there's increased tension um, just because you can't look away. Right. You can't. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can close your eyes. But there's also but the, this audio. There's like, the, that's the two layers of it where... Yeah, you you are experiencing a horrific you know game, but at the same time you're also blindfolded in the real world. So if you actually get scared, like you, you don't know like who who's in the room with you, it's scary stuff. That's why I play my office. I wish Close I was the door like that. I wish I could play those games because I th- th- I would love to play that. If I was not scared by horror games in general, even especially in VR, then I'd, I'd be all over that. But it's also that's a perfect game, and maybe it's it's one of the reasons it's best suited for maybe PSVR because it's not like a room scale. You're not walking around the physical house, right? You are still using a controller. You can peer this lateral movement. You can peer around corners, but you're playing in your living room, not your office, and people can watch. And so maybe the way to overcome playing a horror game is to really play it With in people. the company of others and have people. You know, it's it's not designed to be asynchronous, the, asymmetrical that way, where people are yelling and helping you. Absolutely, I'd, I feel much more comfortable. It's more, way more comfortable when you know you are in the presence of other people, even if you're you know you have your headphones on. I like headphones off is the first thing I do because um, sound is so so important to the, the horror experience. Um, Racket NX is a game that I recommended months ago when they released a demo on Steam, and it's finally out on early access. Uh, came out, I want to say, a day or two on, ago on Steam. Highly recommend this game. It's it's a racquetball-style game with a Tron aesthetic where you, you hit the ball into a, a, a walls that are all around you, and the, it generally comes back to you, and you hit it, and you try to hit these uh, sequence of walls. You want to hit the same color again and again. Um, <clears throat> the full game, uh, the, the early access version of it now, has several different sort of uh, evolutions that the map can go into where you are hitting the wall sometimes, and then sometimes some of the walls turn into little wormholes, so the ball like goes off into the distance and then enters the room from another direction. There's a snake that goes along the wall, and you have to hit it. There's also a multiplayer mode that I haven't tried yet because yeah. there's just not enough people playing, so I would wait and no one would be on. Can you talk about the racket mechanics and if it's better for Rift or for the Vive controller? That's what, Yeah, that's the main takeaway is this game has the best racket physics of any paddle, any racket sport I've played in VR. Bar none. I love the feel of this game, and it's not an easy thing to accomplish. Because um, I've, I've, I've played a lot of racket games in VR. I've, I tinkered, I spent a week of make, uh, designing my own little ping pong simulator. It's hard to do these things well, and these guys really, really do. Like, the ball always goes where I think it should have gone with the right amount of spin and curve, and, you know, the English that you can put on the ball is really feels great. Um, does that answer your question? Well, there's a physics aspect to it, but there's also the ergonomics. And... Oh, yeah, sorry, Switch controller. Um, uh, the the Rift plays fine. The Vive plays fine, too. The one thing is, unlike most games that I've played on the Rift, this is one where you you really do want room scale. You want not only like 360, but also a lot of space. Because you 
you hit you want to hit this ball really hard. Mm. There's some games like hollow ball where y- y- you hit the ball and it, you, you know if you hit it hard or not, that's kind of irrelevant. This one, you you just get you get really into it. You want to work up a sweat, and that's something where when you are tracking physically the controller, it's not just about the velocity because you can flick your wrist real fast. Yeah, a lot of these games you require fast flicking of wrists, but if they're tracking the actual the arc, the the radius of your swing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you would want a a full on arm movement for. And you, so because you're swinging so hard and the swings can be so wide, you don't you don't want anything around you. So you're gonna want a nice wide space. Where you're not going to hit a desk. I was getting quite nervous playing this game in my office, and I'm probably, I would probably choose to play it uh, in a on a wider space if you have a vibe. I think that makes a little bit more sense because you get this full 360 because the ball really does come from all directions. Um, and finally, we have an update to one of the first big VR experiences in games that we we love, which is Elite Dangerous, and the, the Elite team has been pumping out updates on schedule. Like this is. The game is so different than when we had the DK2, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, the latest update is the Commander's update, and I remember wait, really, really excited about this. Uh, I think this could bring a lot more pe- a lot of people back to the game. Yeah, it's a four-player p- co-op in the same ship, in the same cockpit. Yeah, captain's chair, but all all doing different roles. It's straight up Star Trek. It is, the, and and there is a Star Trek VR game coming out, which that's right. For everyone who's played U- it, Ubisoft. Ubisoft. Yeah. It, it's that one is um, more mini game oriented. Elite is a simulator. Uh, I am excited. I you guys you guys want to do some Elite Dangerous co op? Get, get a ship commanded. Can you now, now? Can you do just two people or just three people? You know, even if you have a ship of four, if someone's not available, right? I don't know um, because th- there are four different positions. You've got um, helm, and you've got uh, weapons, you've got engineering, and you've got like defense. Um, so I mean, some I think that the flight controls and the weapons sound the most interesting. The others maybe a little less so, but I mean, remains to be seen. These guys know what they're doing, and they really have a great reputation for UI and immersibility, or uh, you know, immersing games. So I'm I'm really excited to try it. I hope it actually requires you know your because the game originally uh, you have your own ship. I hope it requires you actually meeting up in the virtual space and docking your ship so that you can be in the shared ship and someone can't just log in and jump inside a fourth seat. Because well, I think a real important part of yeah. the social experience is that you build the team and you have to make sure that your your crew is going to be the same or you know the same around the same people the whole time. Well, what's it going to take to get a ship that can have four people in it? Do yeah. you have to buy that in the store? You know, Is that something that I can, having not played the game in several months, can I just jump in and get a ship like that? And invite my friends over. I can't remember. Is it two? Is your standard ship like two? Single. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. And they've never done any kind of multiplayer. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, obviously it is a multiplayer game, but you're only ship versus ship. Like you don't walk around a spaceport together or anything like that. But I, we'll be able to see each other in the same cockpit. We'll be, able, we'll be sitting in different stations. Uh, apparently you can customize your, your avatar now to a great degree so you can look how you want to look. Uh, I think it's very exciting. It's a boy that they, they make a very immersing game. Well, we should find somebody, a podcast listener, to be our fourth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as punishment again. All right, and I think uh, that does it for this week's um, VR segment. Uh, one last segment. Want to talk about what you guys been testing? I do testing this week. 
hey, what have you guys been testing? Cough syrup of different kinds. Oh my gosh, Dayquil. And NyQuil. By the way, NyQuil knocks you out. I know, it's yeah. good. And then I was told that I, I'd wake up refreshed. Uh-uh. No, I woke up night knocked out. Okay. I've been fi- I finally got on board with Clash Royale. And I will give full credit to my son who's fully addicted to the game and has been asking me Wait, wait, wait. Clash of No, no, no. Clash, Clash. of Clans was the, was a big hit by this company called Supercell. Mm-hmm. And then they released Clash Royale last year as the follow-up. And it's kind of an RTS version of I you know, it's like a um, uh Plants vs. Zombies, but not as linear. You tower know, defense. It's kind of tower defense, but you can place your units and then they always march forward. Got it. Okay. Um, is that what Clash of Clans is like? I, I never played that. Me neither. Uh, um, in any case, so I've been playing Clash Royale um, for, I don't know, a couple weeks now. And boy, uh, I, I've never liked these games. And I, I still have this major problem with these games. Not just the fact that they get you hooked and then they want to make money. I mean, I get that that's their business model, but the lengths that they go to, to this game has now taken that kind of design and it, it just refines it. It like distills it. It's like moonshine for microtransaction games. What does it do? Well, like they have not only maximized the, the addiction and then getting you to, to pay, to give them money by, um, you know, getting, giving you some cool stuff and then making you, make it longer before you get the, the other good stuff. They have these chests that you open and you get gold and cards in order to improve your deck. And then you, you go out and you, you play other people and it's your deck versus their deck. It's To begin with, like if, it, if the game's not an even playing field, I don't understand the competition element. It just doesn't, I've never understood why people play Magic the Gathering, for instance, or card games like that. If, it, if it's not an even playing field, what's... I, I would give me an, the exact same deck, give me a game like Quake... Uh, you know, Overwatch game that where everyone is on an even even playing field. And let's see who the better player is. I like that, but when you have a game like this where you you don't even know what the other person has, or they they bought more cards, so of course they're going to be a little bit better. Anyway, what the, what this this game does that bothers me even more is that like when you get to a point where they want you to stop playing if you're not going to pay, and that bugs me because I've always thought microtransaction games, these these in-app purchase games. They should allow you to progress at a slower pace. Much yeah. slower in some cases. Fine. Like, make it a tenth of the rate that, it would, that I would go if, if I did, you know, if I did pay. But I should be able to progress. But it gets to a point where you can't get a new card. You can't improve your deck unless you wait 12 hours or, you know, 8 hours until your, car, your, your thing's time out. That's how it's been, though. It's unless you pay. So what, what that tells me is they don't want me playing. And they don't want me using up their server time. So they have not only maximized how much money I'll give them, they've minimized the amount of money I cost them. Yeah. And I hate that. I hate that they've gotten that efficient. Yeah. And they can tell. Yeah. They can tell number of free users. You got to give them timeouts. Player timeout. You don't play. You don't pay. You don't play. You get timeout. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I just think that that's insane. Next thing they can do is just give you a tag freebie freeloader <laughs> freeloader tag you know and the game is so popular that they don't need me they don't need me to play they really don't like if i'm costing them a few cents they don't want me on there they just wanted to give you the taste yeah uh and the, the sad news is i gave them a dollar oh no jerry <laughs> what did you do i gave them what you cents. break the seal i know i i said you know i'm there i'm not going to give them any money and then they gave me this great 
thing when I leveled up. And I said, well, that's some really good value. I'm gonna, <laughs> and I justified no. it. I said, I'm, look, okay, I have played this game. They deserve a dollar from me. That, that was my justification. And that, as true as that may be, it's still it feeds the beast. And I feel, I feel, I feel dirty. All right. I'm sorry, Jeremy. Just take some NyQuil and sleep it off. Yeah, It'll be well, all right. Yeah. That's, yeah. My, that's my Clash Royale rant. Hey, um, some of the things that are on the site this week, uh, addition to some behind-the-scenes footage um, and visits that Adam paid to the Expanse <laughs> set, uh, for our premium community, we've been rolling out a lot of videos, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time sharing with some of our new series that we have launched. Um, Frank and I have been uh, working on some effects projects, and we've done, I think, six of them so far. Um, hope you guys have been enjoying those. Uh, but Jeremy, we actually just launched his new show on Tested uh, this week. It's called uh, Bits to Atoms, Didn't and know that. it's with Jeremy and Sean. Do you Sean play Char- Bits or Sean Atoms? <laughs> Sean Charlesworth. Sean Charlesworth. Um, now, my wife got that confused. She thought it was Adam Savage. Uh, Bits to Atoms. It's actually Atoms. Bits to Atoms. A-T-O-M. A-T-O-M. Up and Atom. Yes. Um, and the idea is that uh, you and Sean are working together to turn these uh, fantastical dream projects into a real... Uh, real things um, using design, CAD, fabrication, prototyping, um, and electronics work. And the first project, Jeremy, you want to talk a little about what that first project was? Yeah. People may have spotted this on the set if you're watching the video. It's a, like a 1983 Coleco tabletop arcade game, Donkey Kong, 1982. Uh, this was given us by a listener friend, Steve Lynn, who was on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, and... Well, I always wanted one of these, so and uh, Sean had one, so it was a natural fit. It was a perfect first project. So we remade this in CAD, three D printed it, embedded it with a Raspberry Pi screen um, and a gamepad for the controls to simplify the wiring, and it's all you know looks great. And it's um, we give away we will give away the the files so you can make your own. And the the series is about our design process, and it's a lot of fun. It was it posed some challenges, and um, hopefully the show will be about those those kind of challenges. Like we don't want to make it look like everything goes smooth because it doesn't always. Um, and we had a good time. So um, yeah, we're on to episode two now, and we're looking forward to shooting more of that. It was a that was really fun to play. Got to play a little Galaga on it. I only dropped it once. <laughs> it, it's really cool. I mean, it, I was playing it yesterday. It, it's the first main cabinet I've ever made with a vertical screen. So and that feels good. I feel like that's that's. That's really getting into it. Nice, nice. Uh, so that's on the site. Um, in addition, that's some um, uh, bonus materials, so you can follow along if you want to make your own. Um, we'll have, like Jeremy said, the files will also be released soon. Um, and uh, one last bit before we end, um, I did have some personal news. Um, I came back to San Francisco from my vacation and found out um, that a friend of mine from high school had passed away. So I wanted to give a shout out to him and his family. Steve uh, was his name, um, and he was one of my good friends in high school. First one who got me into uh, into Quake, actually. Um, and we uh, both knew Jeremy because we both interned at PC Gamer. Uh, back when we were 15 years old, and we started the, uh, the computer club in our high school. and He was, was at your wedding. And he was at my wedding, yeah. I'm glad he made it to your wedding. Yeah, uh, so that was a little unexpected, but I um, want to give a shout-out to, to him and definitely have our thoughts with him and his family. All right. Um, do we have an outro this week? Uh, probably. Uh, let's see here. You know, I should probably prepare this. 
This huh. week's outro will not be done live. Oh, check this out. Here we so go. This no. one is by Sir Science. Uh, before, as Jeremy cues it up, uh, if you have outro segments you want, would like us to play at the end of each episode, you can just search on Google, uh, this is only a test outro, and I'll take you to our forums where you can download the source file. Uh, if you take any of these MP3 files from our full episodes, pull out funny sound clips and put them in. It's a pretty typical format, and we'll listen to them and may play one in the future. This one, And then this sh- week, share them inside that same form thread, raw outro song file, we, question yes. mark. I, li- I said the phrase golden balls like six times this That's week. That's right. If that doesn't show up, yeah. we're not doing our job. Hi there, I didn't see you. That's it. Carburetor broke on your Hot Wheels. Oh no, buy the, buy the repair <laughs> thing or the microtransaction. <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs>